drop anything. <laughs> Sat down so hard my headphones fell off. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and flying over the head of a referee to co-host with me tonight is Alec Bridgen. Thankfully, I stretched for the show, just in case. That was an impressive flying sidekick, uh, Al, but you are going to pay us for the window repairs, right? Uh, I'll get you next time. (laughs) How's it going tonight? Good, how's it going with you? It's going all right, going all right. Um, I listened to the WCW Mayhem album on the way over here to get in the mood. Oh, good. That is a terrible album. <laughs> it's, it's pretty bad. Especially if you like wrestling music. Yeah. Because it has, I don't know, like 14 tracks on it or something like that. I think of which maybe five or six are actually wrestler theme songs. And of those, you get like 45 seconds to a minute of the actual theme song, usually overdubbed with announcers. Oh, jeez. It's like they recorded a live Nitro broadcast and then just threw in other random rock songs yeah at full length none of which i liked <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. it's like hey did you like ddp's theme well great you get to hear about you know 25 seconds of it also the only related rock song that they didn't put on there smells like teen spirit so well naturally they interject random bits of tony Schiavone commentary he's probably the most featured artist on the entire album yeah, which good for him you know the thing where you try to sync up Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz? Maybe try to sync up the WCW Mayhem pay-per-view with the album. See how it works. Pro- probably not very well since they definitely have audio on there that says it's from Nitro. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> well, tonight we are not covering WCW Mayhem. We are covering Spring Stampede 1999. The Good, The Bad, The Showdown. With that title, this really should end with a triangle match, but it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, a square is kind of a triangle if you're really bad at, you know, shapes. You know, it's two two triangles kind of put into each other. Yeah, I, I suppose, yeah. Spring Stampede 1999 was held on April 11th, 1999 at the Tacoma Dome in Tacoma, Washington, in front of a sold-out crowd of 17,690, of which 16,799 actually paid. Wow. The Tacoma Dome, which is the largest wooden domed arena in the world, uh, is said to be constructed of wood that came from trees broken by the volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. Okay. It seats between 10,000 and 21,000 people, depending on the event and arrangement. Assuming wrestling's on the larger crowd size, but cuts off a good chunk of the arena again, 17,690 seems pretty reasonable for sold out. Yeah, I think if you look at like the hockey seating, it's pretty close to that. Hockey made a little more, but yeah. Spring Stampede 1999 earned 220,000 pay-per-view buys. That's about 30,000 less than last year. Ah. But it is still on the higher end of shows for 1999, unfortunately. Going from last year, where six shows earned more than 300,000, this year only five even hit the 200,000 range. Ooh. And only one, Super Bowl Nine 
reaches the heights of 1998 with 450,000. Wow, even Starcade, like their big one. Yeah. yeah. WCW has fallen from the heights it reached in late 1997 and through 1998, but they're not out yet. No. WCW's new weird logo glares at us, and we go into an opening video package with no narration and loud chugging guitar that just shows us the participants in tonight's main event. Sting, Diamond Dallas Page, Hogan, and world champion Ric Flair. And the other highlighted match tonight, Kevin Nash versus Goldberg. It's an okay video package, but really no story coverage whatsoever and nothing that plays to the cowboy theme. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Okay, not quite nothing. There is an extremely faint overlay of what looks like probably a rodeo. It's so faint, though, that I only realized it was even there on my third watch of the opening. Oh, geez. They should have put, like, a gate graphic over Goldberg, and then when he does the spear, it breaks like he hit it. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, that would be nice, yeah. The show logo, at least, is nice. It's a stylized spring stampede with bullhorns growing out of the top, framing the new 1999-2000 era WCW logo within. It's one of the only show logos that looks genuinely good combined with this era's WCW logo that normally clashes horribly with everything. Very much so, yes. So, quite an accomplishment, graphics guys. Good job. Yeah. Host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show as fireworks go off along the stage, which is, again, a rather nice little Western set. Not as elaborate as the prior two years. It kind of feels like they built it out of what they had left over after DDP versus Raven and Savage versus Sting last year. Yeah. Rather than giving it its own design. Yeah, you know, you can't get new parts. We're going to use these same things. <laughs> That's actually much more <laughs> finance conscious than WCW normally is. Yeah. I, I don't picture them normally recycling things. <laughs> well, they probably did. Is they probably flew the props from show to show, every single show. Yes. Just to make up the difference. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Why are we taking this with us? Uh, who cares? <laughs> They actually did manage to assemble a reasonable little wagon yard kind of set, though. I, I I like it. It's spoiled only by the inclusion of a couple Little Caesars signs, which aren't really quite on the Old West theme. It seemed they could be sponsored by Tombstone Pizza, huh? It, yeah, that would have been smarter. Yeah. The commentary table this year bears the new Spring Stampede logo, backed by brown netting, which suits the theme pretty well. Yeah, it's not bad. Sadly, the commentators still haven't dressed up, though Tony is in a leather jacket this year. He's joined by co-host Mike Tanay and Bobby the Brain Heenan. The continuing absence of Dusty Rhodes from this series makes this show's alternate tagline, Somebody's Getting Dusted, <laughs> nothing but a cruel taunt. Aww. <laughs> Tony builds up the four-way match for the world title, and Heenan says that if Mike Tanay is joining them, it must be Thursday. I'm guessing that's because Tanay hosts Thunder? Yes. Okay. Correct. Tony asks Heenan about Goldberg versus Nash and says, Goldberg wants revenge from Starcade 1998. Heenan says, Nash is the only wrestler who holds a victory over Goldberg, albeit via Taser, and Goldberg doesn't like that, so he's going to get his revenge. Tony asks about the four-way world title match, and Tanay says that the four fighters are important, but so is the special referee, Macho Man Randy Savage. Yep. Steve Austin's old music hits, and it's time for our first match, so let's go to the ring. So our first match is Blitzkrieg versus Juventud Guerrera for the right to challenge for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship on the next Nitro. Referee for this one is Charles Robinson. 
Sadly, Steve Austin's old music does not signify the biggest return WCW could possibly have engineered at this point. Yeah, right. Instead, his old theme has just been appropriated for masked cruiserweight Blitzkrieg, who looks like a cross between a Power Ranger and a Mortal Kombat ninja. Yeah, that's fair. It shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah. He's billed from The Cosmos. Heenan asks if Tony knows where that's located, and Tony jokes it's right next to Parts Unknown. <laughs> Heenan says it's about a half a mile from Yakima, Washington. It's rare, but I think Tony actually outquipped Heenan there. Oh. <laughs> Bound to happen eventually, I suppose. <laughs> Juventud Guerrero's music should be in a Zorro movie. Yes. His tights are complicated. Yes. Silver, red, black, gold, all sorts of iconography and designs. They're exciting, but busy. Yeah. That weird rib pattern around the crotch, too. Uh, that's <laughs> not where the ribs are. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole thing where it's like little pointed spikes pointing at the place you don't really want to be pointing stuff at. <laughs> yes. It is not the worst crotch-related imagery tonight, though. That's true, yeah, yeah. Rapid counter-wrestling leads to a Guerrera drop toehold for two, but Blitzkrieg nicely locks on an ankle lock right after his kickout, only for Guerrera to leg-scissor roll up him for two. They acrobatically work around a Blitzkrieg side headlock, and Blitzkrieg catches a charging Guerrera with a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker for two. They trade chops. As Heenan jokes, the arena will look like Mount St. Helens because WSW action is going to blow the roof off. Ironic, given the roof's origin. That's, that's true, yeah. <laughs> Guerrera counters another tilt-a-whirl, but Blitzkrieg catches him with a handspring back elbow. Each guy gets the crowd to count along as they hit the other one in a funny revenge spot. Yeah. Weird sign in the crowd. Hogan likes Takoda. K-O-D-A. I tried to figure that out, but nothing really made sense unless Hogan's into Denmark's music publishing scene, some Texas radio stations, or modular housing solutions that would not be offered until 23 years after this show. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he looked at the future a lot, man, so I, I very guess, possible. I guess so. Guerrera springboard dropkick to Blitzkrieg's head, and Blitzkrieg rolls out, so Guerrera hits a suicide dive over the top rope. Tanay says, Hoovy has about eight years of experience, but Blitzkrieg's a rookie with two months' experience, quote, with WCW. Yeah. That's true-ish. Aside from a 1998 dark match, he's only been in WCW since January 1999, late January. Yeah. However, he's actually been wrestling since 1994, so this is eight years versus five years, not eight years versus two months, as Tanay does have to admit later on. Yeah, it's in like other, other groups or other organizations, he said. Yeah. yeah. Because Heenan starts to take it too literally. So says, man, this guy's great for two months of experience, and Tanay's like, well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Guerrero brain buster for two, and he tries the Rita Romero special, an elevated surfboard hold. But Blitzkrieg frees himself and falls, ribs to ribs, ow, mm. on top for two. Impressive Blitzkrieg acrobatic kicks, including a flip off of Hoovy's body, and he sends Hoovy outside with a drop kick. But when Blitzkrieg dives out, Hoovy drop kicks him in the chest. Back in for just a second, Blitzkrieg reverses a tilt a whirl to send Guerrero out then hits a beautiful top-rope slingshot springboard moonsault to the outside. Wow. Mm-hmm, yeah. Back in, Guerrera counters a powerbomb to a Hoovy driver attempt, but they trade counters and Blitzkrieg hits an inverted DDT for two. They try something on the top rope, but slip and fall to the mat. Thankfully, they landed safely. 
Blitzkrieg goes up for a Sky Twister press, but Guerrera dodges. Another Hoovy driver, but Blitzkrieg counters with a roll-up for two. Some jerk in the crowd calls, boring. I'm like, what? What match are you watching, man? He is very wrong. <laughs> yes, extremely. Insane top rope spinning flip body scissors by Blitzkrieg for two. Blitzkrieg puts Guerrera up top again, but Guerrera counters with a super hoovy driver for the three count and the win. Holy crap, I would not have wanted to take that one. Yeah, I really trust the money for that. Yeah. Thoughts on this one? It was a fun high-flying match. I thought it's really nice to see Blitzkrieg. He's not around in WCW all that much, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So you got to really sort of take the highlights you get with him. Cruiserweights in general, it really fight for pay-per-view space. So when you're in the company for literally less than a year like he is, you really got to make that count. Yeah, yeah. Other than a few bits where they didn't quite get the move right, like the part in the corner you talked about, and we does the rotation, like the sort of spinning like pin thing, it's not quite as smooth as I've seen. Other than that, he's really good. Mm-hmm, absolutely. His energy is quite good. He doesn't have any extra like character. Like He doesn't like, you know, get mad at the crowd or like try to amp up the crowd. He just kind of performs. That's pretty mild critique, honestly, because a lot of these guys, they're just they're, they're out there to wrestle. They don't really have a long-term story for them. So if Hogan went out and didn't do anything with the crowd, you'd be like, what It'd be shocking, Hogan? yeah. He's terrible, but it's a combination of like, not what they're expected to do and maybe they're not really encouraged to do it because... If you get over, then Hogan's that over. And like, I think that that's a case where the two months experience in WCW right. does become a factor that he's used to wrestling, but not necessarily in front of huge crowds. Sure. This is, what did we say, 17,000 people? Yes. That's a different thing trying to work with a crowd of, of that level. You know, where Hoovy, you can tell, will occasionally do some call to the crowd or just looking around, seeing what reaction he's getting and that kind of stuff. And like later, like Rey Mysterio does that very well. But yeah, Blitzkrieg, I, I I would suspect that's an area where you can see, oh, he's only been in WCW a short time. He's not used to full-fledged TV pay-per-view type of stuff. Yeah. With him and Hoovy, it's definitely a case of them being really ambitious. Mm-hmm. Not always hitting everything exactly right, but more times than not hitting it quite well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The other thing I really liked is that they tease the obvious finish multiple times. Mm-hmm. They don't go for it they you know it's countered award you know dodge or anything so when they build up to a big finish like they do the counter in the corner it feels like oh my regular move didn't work or this didn't work so i have to do this Mm -hmm. and it's nice too that he catches him with it in an unexpected location Mm -hmm. you know an unexpected way so it makes sense the guy was ready for the hoovy driver yeah he was not ready for countered into the hoovy driver out of the top rope position that's just like oh my gosh i wasn't expecting it here it makes sense why he's caught by it no absolutely yeah yeah that was a good match yeah i thought this was a seriously fun opener that one flub top rope spot aside and they quickly recovered from that hoovy and blitzkrieg worked really really well together and matched each other's pace providing a number of excellent rapid and creative counter sequences that kept me guessing both got plenty of chances to look good and pulled off some great acrobatic moves, and they did just enough to give a connective thread of a story, aided by some good commentary to point out some of their strategy. I've seen a lot of Hoovy, of course, but Blitzkrieg I'm much less familiar with, mm-hmm. and he really impressed me here. He's quite good. I think he quickly fits in very well with WCW's Cruiserweight division. 
is a good addition to the mix, and I do hope we get to see more of him, though, like you said, he's not around for very long, so I imagine he doesn't make too many pay-per-views. Yeah. Still, hopefully, during 99, he could be a bright spot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we get a little bit more of him, at least, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hoovy being the winner, gets the title shot. He would not win, however. There's a little more of on the Kingsbury title, but I'll cover that when it relates to the title match later. Tony describes our next match as a, quote, real kick-him-in-the-rear-end type of match. <laughs> <laughs> and throws to a video package that the commentators just go ahead and narrate over of Bam Bam Bigelow and Hardcore Hack, ECW's Sandman, beating each other up and throwing each other into hard objects. In one match, apparently, Raven's kayfabe sister, Chastity, sprayed Bigelow with a fire extinguisher. I assume you're going to have more of an explanation for that in a moment, Al. You'd think so. <laughs> so our second match is Hardcore Hack with Chastity versus Bam Bam Bigelow in a hardcore match. Referee for this one is Mickey J, who sadly I recently heard uh, passed away. He did, yeah. Our deepest sympathies to his family and friends, and maybe they be blessed with memories of better days. There's not a super huge story following these two in the ring. The bigger story is actually behind the scenes. So at this point, Dragon 99, there's a big talent raid on ECW. With WCW, they bring in a lot of guys to fill in with like people like Raven, who's been there a while. That included people like Sandman, as we see here, as Hardcore Hack, which is a definite downgrade, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. The Sandman sounds much cooler as a name. Yeah. There's also Mikey Whipwreck, who we'll see later. Who sadly got to keep his name. Yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> the, every time I'm writing his name in my notes, it keeps trying to autocorrect you, Mikey Shipwreck. <laughs> I'm like, why does that sound better, Google? What's going on here? Why does that make sense to you? But yeah, so they brought on these ECW guys because this is the point where ECW is both doing well as far as getting promotion through, at this point, videotapes and, to a lesser extent, pay-per-view. But at the same time, they're also not making as much money as you think they'd make doing all this. Mm -hmm. So when someone's like, hey, I'll guarantee your payday every week and every month, they're like, yes, please. Yeah. And a lot of them went. Chastity's also one of those. She's not really talked about as much. She also was in ECW as well. Oh, okay. Before Raven left, she actually was his valet. Ah, okay. So there's that connection there. So at a previous show, there's a big match involving Raven, Bigelow, and Hardcore Hack. And the whole idea is that Chastity is Raven's sister and she's out there. Confusingly, she helps him beat up other people, including Hardcore Hack, during the match. But then turns on at the end of the match, let Hardcore Hack win. It's like it's a really weird long con. I'm gonna beat you up so he won't expect it when I beat him up instead. <laughs> Which may make sense if you're the Sandman. It's the kind of logic that goes to your brain. Yeah. But yeah, so now she's aligned with him and she is on a previous show helped him in a match against Bigelow by using the fire extinguisher. Oh, okay. As to why people use fire extinguishers as weapons, that's just a thing in wrestling. <laughs> Hack comes out wrapped in barbed wire, carrying a table, and wearing a t-shirt that I'm pretty sure I've seen Raven wear before. Yeah. Chastity comes down with him, carrying a kendo stick. I never quite got how weapons associated with a disciplined and heavily armored Japanese sport ended up the weapons of choice for certain hardcore wrestlers. Yeah, it's true. I guess they like it because it makes a good sound. Yeah, that is true. That is true. 
it's like maybe one of the guys like, you know, Justin Credible, who's most known for that, other than maybe Sandman here, attended a, you know, like his nephew's karate class. Is like, ooh, that sounds nice. <laughs> I'll using this now. Tony notes Chastity is quite attractive and tries to get Tanae to say so too after checking if Tanae's wife is watching. <laughs> a somewhat flustered Tanae excellently dodges by instead talking about how she turned on her brother Raven at the previous pay-per-view. Good job there, Tanae. Yeah, good save. <laughs> Tony cuts Tanae off as Bigelow enters with a custodian's cart full of weapons, and Hack, sans barbed wire, which he's left on a ring post, charges to join him, so the match is on. Bigelow rams his weapon cart into Hack, and they brawl, ending up near the stagecoach from the set, where Hack pulls a table out that's buried in hay under the stagecoach. Why is that there? And has it been there since last year? Why not? Heenan says. That's not an answer, <laughs> Hack props Bigelow on the table, climbs up on the stagecoach, and hits a front somersault dive to put Bigelow through the table. Bigelow is up before Hack, which says a lot about this match. Yeah, it's weird that they already built to the I can knock you out, I have to climb the structure and dive on you uh-huh. already. Yeah, and then he's just up first. Yeah. You're like, what? what? <laughs> Meanwhile, Chastity has unpacked the weapon cart nicely for them. They brawl back to ringside, and Trash Can gets involved again. Tony points out that trash cans are probably the least harmful items in the ring. That's true, but probably don't say that, Tony. Yeah, right? Especially when they're about to use trash cans roughly 78 billion times in this match. Yeah. Hack stuns Bigelow with a chair and goes out to prop a table between the ring apron and a crowd barricade, then goes back in as they brawl with a variety of weapons. A broom gets involved, so Tony and Tanae delight in sweeping puns. (laughs) It's good to hear Tanae join in that time. Yeah. Heenan wonders if Bam Bam is taking up curling. (laughs) I'm still very confused by that sport. I watched it a lot on the Winter Olympics, and I I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of the things, I don't know how you got from point A to point B creating that. Right, right, yeah. It's like the rules, as they consist together, actually, like, you can kind of get them and understand them. Yeah. But figuring out how they came up with the rules in the first place, it's like, what? (laughs) Right. I mean, bowling is weird, to be fair, but it's like... Take object, throw another object, the end. Yes, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Bigelow puts a salad bowl on Hack's head and punches it, which seems like it would hurt Bigelow's hand more than Hack's head. A Hack attempt to counter a Bigelow suplex goes horribly wrong, and Bigelow falls straight down on Hack's knees. First attempt at an actual wrestling move in this match, and it's a disaster. Yeah, like... I'm still confused by that one. Like, did he did not have the timing right, or like he couldn't get him over? It's really strange. Uh, yeah, I mean, he doesn't even get him up at all. No, he like lifts him up about a quarter inch, and then he just drops him right on his own knees and screams. Yeah. <laughs> Which, thankfully, he was okay, but that probably felt very, very bad. It looked like it did. Yes. They brawl around using a ladder and smash each other into it. Then Hack puts it on Bigelow and somersaults off the top onto the ladder atop Bigelow, and then bulldogs Bigelow onto the ladder. Hack retrieves another table and a barricade and puts them both in the ring. The earlier table has fallen down, so Hack has Chastity set it back up, then sets the ladder by the ropes nearby. Tony lapses into helpless laughter trying to call this. Yeah, right. With Bigelow down near the ropes, Hack climbs the ladder, even though it's in a position where he could basically do nothing to Bigelow without hitting the ropes on the way down. Shockingly, 
Bigelow pulls the ladder over and Hack spills out through the table, almost as though that's the only reason the ladder was in that position in the first place. Dull surprise. <laughs> yeah. Back in, Bigelow hurls Hack into the ladder, but Hack beats him up with a crutch and puts him on the barricade, but Bigelow dodges a Hack leg drop and Hack crotches himself. Ow. Yeah. Chastity tries to spray Bigelow with a fire extinguisher, but it won't work. She excellently freaks out when Bigelow glares at her, and he takes the extinguisher and sprays her and much of the front row. You would think a guy with fire on his head wouldn't be very good with that thing. (laughs) Well, that's why he's pointing it away from himself. True, true. Hack sets up a table and hits a kendo stick-assisted Russian leg sweep to the barricade. A dazed Bigelow crawls to the corner, where Hack lands punches, but Bigelow picks him up and hits the greetings from Asbury Park through the table. Hack rolls over onto the fire extinguisher, and Bigelow pins him on top of it, which technically shouldn't count because Hack's shoulders are not on the mat. It mercifully gets three anyway. Bigelow beats his chest in celebration, bellowing, That's hardcore! Who's hardcore? By the way, why is he asking who's hardcore? I mean, hardcore Hack is hardcore. Well, I, I guess maybe he's disagreeing with that. Oh, okay. Tony advises fans not to try this in their backyard, and Heenan helpfully suggests they use their living room instead as it's more fun. I'm sure WCW's lawyers loved Heenan's statement. Yes, I'm sure they did. He does save it, though, by saying if they fought in Tony's living room, no one would even notice, implying it's full of garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts on this one? Uh, What did I... Deep notes I wrote for this. Lots of weapon shots. No psychology. A few botches. It's all spectacle. Pretty much that's all there is. I mean, for better or worse, these kind of matches are just people walking around hitting or slaying people with undo or through objects or into objects. There's never like working a body part. Mm-hmm. There's really not even like a story of like a guy taking control for a long period of time. It's just, I'll get a move, no, you get up and hit a move, and I'll get a move. There's barely any selling in the match to begin with. I mean, Bigelow, as, as noted, gets straight up after a table bump. Hack takes not that much longer, as I recall, to get up after the one where he fell outside the ring through the table. Yeah. There's no sense of it being, there's no sense. I think that's a good description. Yeah, yeah. There's no, but there's no sense of like them wearing each other down really at all. It's just mindless weapon strikes. Right. To go back to the comparison they made talking about Lucha in the previous show, like with the La Parca match, you can look at really well-crafted matches as being like a really elaborate movie fight scene. Like you see in like a James Bond movie or something like that. Then you have the sort of stunt show thing when you talk about with Lucha, where you know it's all working together. They don't hide it very well, but you see the spectacle of these flips and dives mm-hmm. and everything. This is basically like when you watch thing where they just a big bar fight in a saloon, really. Mm-hmm. And just people punching and hitting people with bottles, and that's pretty much all there is to it. Yeah, you bring up the Lucha matches. That's an interesting comparison because I had a similar comparison on it. We discussed last year that the Lucha matches are, as you said, cooperative, but heavily choreographed sometimes. Right. You see behind the curtain a little bit more, but it's worth it because of the interesting choreography. Yes. This is very similar in that you see beyond the curtain very often because you see them setting up spots for each other, basically, like the latter bit where he sets it up near the ropes for no other purpose than to get thrown off of it. Correct. So it's very much like that in that you see behind the curtain, except without the interesting choreography. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like I said, it's like when you watch a Western, they have the big saloon fight. Mm -hmm. Everyone's kind of standing in a big pile, 
things are being broken, people will sit across the bar countertop, all that kind of stuff, but ultimately you don't remember what so and so did in this fight. You just remember, wow, there's a lot of stuff that happened there. Yeah. Anyway, what's next? <laughs> yeah, I thought this was a collection of spots more frequently silly than brutal, albeit still overly risky to the performers, connected only by brawling and occasional strikes with weapons, without any sense of story, character, or strategy beyond me is tough, me hit foe with object. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I can enjoy a good chaotic brawl, see last year's DDP versus Raven for me. Right. But you have to tell a story, and this one did not. No. And as we mentioned, some spots were just incredibly blatant in their setup. The spots just exist to exist, and half the time the two barely bother to sell them at all. So this kind of just goes on until Bigelow blessedly hits a finisher and ends it. It's unnecessarily dangerous and mostly dull. Right. When you have parts like Bigelow when he's waiting for Chastity to try to interrupt. So he's standing there holding a ladder over his head. And then he goes, uh, just like looking around, waiting for something to happen. Yeah. He eventually does sort of toss it on Sandman, which, one, is unimpressive because it's just, you just sort of dumped it out there. But also probably still hurt. Yeah. Because you're still throwing a metal ladder to somebody. Yeah, there's no, there's no way that that hits you in a way that feels okay. Yeah. Somehow an edge of something is coming down on your soft fleshy bits. Right. <laughs> so everyone is getting hurt and you're not getting the benefit at least of it looking cool. Yeah. Process. Yeah. At the uh, Great American Bash is the next time we have a hardcore match. It is between Hardcore Hack and Brian Nobbs. So that oh, is a... Uh, God. Something that also exists. New announcement, everyone. We are not covering the Amer- Great American Bash series. <laughs> no, I kid. <laughs> So Chastity, right around that match, she's abruptly fired from WCW and vanishes from wrestling for a bit. Basically, standards of practice that WCW and, I guess, really Ted Turner discovered she had been in, let's say, an adult film in her past, which, you know, I'm not judging. People do things. It's a job, whatever. But yeah, when you're working a multinational TV show, essentially, they're not, not fond of that. Not, not, yeah, I can see that. Not overly clean there, yeah. Not being something they particularly liked, yeah. So there's sadly there's no big like payoff to like the she betrays Raven, and you know he gets revenge and everything because he just kind of leaves abruptly after that match because of that. Okay. Yeah. Our third match is Scotty Riggs versus Mikey Whipwreck. Referee for this one is Johnny Boone. Uh, in very recent memory, we had the flock disbanded by way of Perry Saturn and his actions, as well as DDP to a certain extent. That left all the people from the flock to do new things. Obviously, Kidman rebounded quite nicely. Yes. Finally stopped doing heroin and, you know, won a title or so. Which is good. Good for him. I like to think that that diamond cutter last year shocked it out of his system, just like immediate drug cure. Fair enough. (laughs) We'll have to try that places, I'm sure. Good idea. (laughs) Scotty Riggs was just kind of hanging around in the flock with an eye patch. The idea being that he took a bump on a chair to his face and he had to wear an eye patch, so now no one likes him, apparently, which is, according to Raven, anyway, he just kind of believes him. So, no, that's not happening. He suddenly rediscovered body positivity, so, hey, that's the upside. He's become Rick Rude version 2.0. I would more characterize it as Rick Rude version 0.7, but... (laughs) Yeah, it's an attempt at Rick Rude 2.0. Is that better for you? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it succeed, but that's the idea. <laughs> As to Mikey Whipwreck, he is also around. Yeah, that's pretty much the description yeah. of it. 
Yeah. Yes, uh, Scotty Riggs is now doing a Rick Rude gimmick. He comes out with a hand mirror to admire his looks. He does have a nice sleeveless robe, though. It's red and black. He's joined the wolf pack. Uh-oh. No, not really. <laughs> it does look pretty cool, though. I actually like the robe. Yeah. Mikey Whipwreck, on the other hand, comes dressed as a cross between a wrestler and a customer at your local RPG and board game store. Yeah. He's got a do-rag. A t-shirt with exceptionally nice artwork of a knight fighting a dragon on one side and the dragon breathing fire on the other, and fairly standard wrestling tights. Yeah. It doesn't really work together at all. When he has that combination like sock and like leg covering, yeah. I believe he's he's dealing with knee issues right now. So it's sort of like compression socks kind of thing. You you kinda wish that he'd just gone full Cena and done like jorts or something like that. And yeah. that would actually work better. Mm-hmm. Even if he wore the leg covering thing underneath it. Yeah. Actually just going, I'm wrestling in street clothes fully. You you either need to do full street clothes or full wrestling gear, not both. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) Riggs doffs his coat, gesturing disbelievingly at Whipwreck, and referee Boone looks amused. Riggs does Rick Rude hip swivels and shoves Whipwreck around, tauntingly tugging his cheek. Riggs throws Whipwreck around and walks over him, bragging about his looks, but Whipwreck slaps him hard, twice. Whipwreck lands strikes and a dropkick, and Riggs falls outside, where he amusingly puts up his dukes, but is too dazed to find Whipwreck, so he just gets hit from behind. Whipwreck puts Riggs' head on the ropes and leg drops him, then dropkicks him through the ropes, slingshots over, and hits a hurricane rana, but Riggs dodges another leg drop, and Whipwreck lands hard on the apron, so Riggs knocks him into the barricades. Riggs lands some vicious strikes, but wastes time posing, and tries pinning Whipwreck with a single finger for one. Tony references Chris Jericho's uh, single foot pin. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no yeah, baby. No. Riggs keeps up the beating and earns two with an elbow drop. Whipwreck eventually gets a boot up on a corner charge. Whipwreck earns two counts with a second rope drop kick, Russian leg sweep, and Hurricane Rana. Riggs dodges a clothesline, and so does Whipwreck. But Whipwreck doesn't dodge a flying forearm, and that earns Riggs the three count and the win. Well, that was sudden. A little bit, yeah. Riggs celebrates with a little hip swivel on the ropes. Thoughts on this one? It's a decent match, but it really feels like a TV match, no? I totally agreed. Yeah. So I get the idea. So they've repackaged Scotty Riggs. He has this whole I'm good-looking gimmick, which, by the way, is the only line he doesn't say. Or like, subversion of I'm good-looking or look at me. Yes. I I do have to say, he is a handsome fellow. No, yeah, I'm not taking that away from yeah. him, for sure. So, so it's a good guy to give the gimmick to, but he clearly is very, very new to doing the gimmick. Right, right. But yeah, so I get the idea. He has this new gimmick. You really want to repackage him and say what he looks like and see what he can do, but this doesn't feel like it really belongs at pay-per-view. No. They don't act like this is some sort of blood feud, or there's even like some quick story, like, oh, so-and-so attacked me in the back. Now I want to fight him. You play the video before the match, and at least you have something to go off right. of. Right. Yeah. The story they seem to try to give it is that Riggs doesn't take Whipwreck seriously as a wrestler because, you know, the outfit. Right. Sure. But the eyes, yes. That would work better if they hadn't just repackaged Riggs. Yeah. Like if you have the well established Scotty Riggs character who's been doing that character for several years. Right. But you're trying to have Riggs establish a new character for himself and also use him to establish that this guy can wrestle, except you are also got to establish Riggs so he has to win. Right. <laughs> so they're trying to accomplish like 
three or four things in this match, and therefore none of them really work. Yeah. And because there's no like proper buildup of this guy on the like six different shows they have at this point, it's just, hi, this is a new guy. Who's this guy? Who's this person? The crowd has nothing to gauge reactions for. Yeah. They're assuming you know who he was because he was an ECW, basically. Yeah. And with the Riggs, they're assuming you remember him being a tag team with Buff Bagwell. Yeah. But, yeah, do you? Vaguely, but, yeah, yeah not, not so much. Riggs is all gimmick here, and he went with basically a worse version of Booker T's flying forearm. Yes. Unrelated to the match, but somehow it never occurred to me why he's named Scotty Riggs, like where they got the last name from. Leave the weapon. Oh, okay. I mean, it seems obvious to me. I'm like, why, not, why didn't I figure that out? Yeah, but yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I guess I don't spend much time thinking about Scotty Riggs, so that's probably why, <laughs> to be fair. But I read that, I'm like, oh, that seems really obvious, yeah. I'm just surprised they didn't actually uh, give him a patriotic gimmick and give him his old theme song, but just says, American male, American male, just American do it. American males. Just, yeah. just cut the S off. and you. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could reuse basically the entire song then. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, once I got past the distraction of Whipwreck's oddly mismatched outfit, this was okay. But it's just kind of an average match. I agree with you. It's very much just a TV match that really should probably have just stayed on one of the regular shows. Yeah. I do think that Riggs did decent enough with his character work, even though the character is just basically Rick Rude doing a hip swivel. Yeah. And Whipwreck did do some nice diving moves. So there's nothing really wrong with this. It's just that they don't do anything to elevate it beyond the average match and make it special for a pay-per-view event. Exactly, yeah. I mean, even just having a cut a pre-match promo would have helped. Yeah. Having one or both of them do something would have helped. Anything to just give it something that makes it worthy of being pay-per-view level. Yeah. This really is slightly above a jobber match. Yeah. To kind of get over Riggs's character, it's just slightly above a jobber match because they're also trying to get over Whipwreck a little bit. That's true, yeah. But yeah, it, it really belongs on one of the TV shows. Now, to be fair, I think Whipwreck is pretty good at his role. Mm -hmm. He's not bad at it at all. Once you get past the oddness of his look and everything, he does his few like highlight moves pretty well, I thought. Absolutely. And he makes a decent like underneath baby face. That's a good role to fill for him. Mm -hmm. I think it's a combination of because Riggs is so new to this, he doesn't have enough character to make that feel extra special. Yeah. And because neither one gets a real big rub from this, it doesn't really have much impact. Yeah, exactly. This is the only pay-per-view appearance for Scotty Riggs as his gimmick. Oh. It's also his last pay-per-view appearance. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. He would be released as part of budget cuts in September of 1999. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, he's, he's never been a standout, I don't think, but he's never been bad. No. I guess a lot of you have so many people and they cost so much money. And WCW actually cares about how much money it's spending for a brief period of time. Yes. <laughs> when it, they finally hire an accountant, goes, wait, you're doing what now? Yes. Yeah. We owe how much in legal fees to defend DDP's theme song? <laughs> yeah, right. Ironically, though, what's funny is, though, Riggs gets fired by WCW. Where does he go? ECW. <laughs> With all these people leaving ECW to go to WCW, he does the opposite. Apparently, he was, or is, I don't know, a personal life uh, friend with Rob Van Dam, so he got a job there, where he gets to basically, he had to be his friend, then betray him, they have a match. Okay. Fair enough. Good to know that he got something else from this. Yeah. Whipwreck would appear next on pay-per-view at the Great American Bash, another show that's looking really good the more we discuss it in the future, where he wrestles Van Hammer. Oh. 
Yeah, we're 0 for 2 from this show in the future, Bob. Yeah. Okay. Great American Bash 1999. Not looking pleasant. (laughs) Gotta have some upsides. Tony tells us the next match is Conan versus Disco Inferno and throws to a video package covering their feud. It appears that Disco bragged about having a music video award or maybe insulted Conan's or something and one of those things annoyed Conan or something like that. It's not a very clear video package, so I'll let Al cover the story in a moment. So our fourth match is Conan versus Disco Inferno. Referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. Yeah, so basically what happened is Conan, being a big station in Mexico, has a music video, which because I'm watching on the Peacock version, they cut because they don't have the rights to it and don't want to pay him for it. Okay. The whole crux of the feud is something I, I'm told exists, but I'm not shown. <laughs> nice. It's great. Disco's response is to make his own, which they also don't show. Wow. I don't know. Maybe it's too close to the Conan one because it's the parody one in the story. Be, so could be. Though parody is protected quite clearly under fair use rules of the United right. States Copyright Act. So, But it's kind of, a, it might be grayer because it's something they don't own and it's not like famous, the parody. Or if you use the actual song in it or something like that, yeah. maybe, yeah. I don't know. Either way, it's Disco Inferno, so I really don't care if I need to hear it or not, so, <laughs> in all fairness. It's also worth noting that there is a bit of patch friction, which should be mentioned in commentary, but isn't. I don't think, anyways. So at the beginning of the year, when they did the NBO Elite storyline, where they merged together, they kicked Conan out of the Wolfpack, mm-hmm. but for some reason kept Disco hanging around. He was never actually in the Wolfpack, but he was adjacent to them so long it to wear a shirt. Yeah, I, I think they do actually mention it on commentary that they booted Conan out of the Wolfpack. It is, a, yeah, it does it feel like that's a big story impact. Yeah, yeah, it feels like it's more about the music video than about you belong to a group that beat me up and kicked me to the curb. Right. So, yeah. Conan comes out in a football uniform sort of shirt and camo pants, which is a bit of an odd look. He grabs a microphone, but WCW fails to turn the microphone on for about half of his promo. <laughs> yep. He briefly insults the NWO and runs through his parade of crowd participation catchphrases. Disco is announced as representing the NWO Wolfpack, but blessedly comes out to his own theme, so NWO Wolfpack theme count zero. Ooh. That briefly made him the biggest face on the show to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get a somewhat artistic bit with his entrance as it's shown superimposed on a disco ball. Yeah, it's not bad. He wears a silver shirt, silver cowboy hat, and camo pants. Also an odd combo. Yeah. Disco informs us that you gotta be a cowboy to wear a cowboy hat. Good to know. Yeah, yeah, okay. There's a very odd sign combo. In sequence, we get a sign claiming that Disco cannot dance, and one requesting that Disco dance. Yeah. (laughs) Conan, who wore camo pants with a totally mismatched shirt in his entrance, grabs the mic and criticizes Disco's very similar outfit. There's some kind of saying about pots and kettles, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it translates to Spanish, though. <laughs> Disco decks Conan as he's putting the microphone down, then doffs his shirt and beats Conan up, even hitting a respectable version of Conan's own rolling lariat. The crowd actually grants him some cheers for that before going back to booing him. Disco goes up top, but Conan shakes the pockets of his pants at him? Yeah. That so unnerves Disco that he hops down, and a quick counter sequence leads to a Conan float over Bulldog. Conan gets brief bursts of offense, including a neat rope running arm drag, but Disco keeps knocking him down, including a nasty diving back elbow to the face. 
With both of them wearing chain necklaces and camo pants, they look like a tag team that's randomly drawn against each other at a Battle Bowl show. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Disco works around a chin lock. Conan breaks it periodically, but Disco earns two with a swinging neck breaker and again with an elbow drop and keeps catching Conan with the chin lock again. Disco hurls Conan outside, but Conan reverses a ring post ram and sends Disco to ring post and barricade. Back in, but Disco kicks the middle rope into Conan to stun him. I don't think I've seen that too often. Yeah. Disco fist drop for two, and he goes back to the chin lock, but Conan breaks free one more time, dodges the second rope elbow drop when Disco takes too long doing finger guns, and hits his rolling lariat. Conan catches a jumping Disco into a cradle DDT for two, and rolls him up for two, but Disco gets two with a float over a swinging neckbreaker. They rapidly counter multiple strikes and grapple attempts, and Disco tries the last dance, a stunner, but Conan shoves him away, boots him in the gut, and hits Disco's own last dance for the three count and the win. Today calls that the ultimate slap in the face. Conan dances around like he's drunk, as his music plays so loudly it's near impossible to hear the commentators <laughs> discuss everything. Thoughts on this one? I'm torn because it's not a bad match, but it's very oddly booked. Mm -hmm. Disco is like really control this match for like way too long. <laughs> we'll see. There's another example of this later in the same show. That made the same guy booking it. Who knows? But it feels wrong to me because it's like Conan isn't like start the offense and then get countered and held down. It's and his host bots are so brief. They don't really feel like a comeback ever start for a long time. Mm-hmm. That said, Disco's offense is not terrible. No. So it's not like other matches we've had where they put a guy who's not good in control of a match and it really drags it down. I think that the crowd has had a hard time dealing with the match because it's just Disco, quite frankly, dominating the whole thing for so long. Mm -hmm. Disco controls so much of the match, and his finisher is the finish. So it really puts his finisher over as well, even if he still not takes it. That is true. I like Conan's offense here. My only critique of... It was kind of a weird bit. His Creole DT looks a little off to me. Because mm -hmm. for one thing, there's a lot of setup, like a half lift up with like certain legs, then you drop him down. But he's trying to go for like a snap sort of DT, but he also makes sure to roll Disco over. So it's like he does a half DT, half suplex. Cradle DDT-plex, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it doesn't look like he ever takes a DT from it. It looks like it takes a weird middle-of-the-year suplex kind of spot, mm -hmm. which doesn't look terrible. It's just kind of... It's, it's a neat-looking move, but yeah, I agree. The landing feels a little strange. Yeah, it should be one or the other. But yeah, it just, it's interesting that the match is so heavily built around. Let's see how good Disco Inferno is. Not choice I would have made, but it's not, not the worst one. Yeah, for me, it felt like the first third and final third of a pretty good match, but they forgot to plan out the middle. Mm, yeah. It starts out reasonably hot, with Disco surprisingly aggressive and Conan managing only a few counters, a nice shift on what one would have expected, honestly, I thought, mm -hmm. given the storyline, and the commentators kind of talk about it that way as well. And it ends quite well, with some quick exchanges and lots of near falls and counters. It's just that the middle section consists mostly of chin locks by Disco, interrupted only by a few brief exchanges that feel significantly simpler than the rest of the match. Mm. It's like they got one of DDP's match binders, but lost pages 25 through 53. Oh. So every chin lock is one asking the other, geez, man, you remember the diagram on page 47? No? Ah, crap, let's just do a ring post ram. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame because there's 
quite a bit to like at the beginning and the end of this, I think. Yeah. But the middle section just drained it of a lot of momentum, and it struggled to gather it back up for the finish. So while it had a good ending, I thought it felt pretty flat. No, I can see that, yeah. Like I said, I'm just still stuck on how much they built around Disco Inferno controlling the match. It's yeah. very strange. It's it's interesting because the story makes it sound like Conan should be the one that's all ticked off and being aggressive, but Conan doesn't act like that coming out. He's just kind of goofing around and everything. So yeah. I don't know, maybe they're going for the idea that Conan doesn't take Disco seriously and gets in trouble for it. Mm. But we just saw a match with that theme, though admittedly this one does it better. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would have worked if, like you said, if that's the story you're going for, have him hit a strong move or two, but then be slow on like a cover or slow, like lift him up really slowly, like, mm-hmm. you know, bragging to the crowd and then, you know, hit below the belt or something or throw under the, the ring or something like that. Yeah. So like Disco shows that he's strong and then he looks and that he can counter. Right. But just from the get-go, he's just aggressive and controls everything. You're like, oh, okay, that's weird. Yeah. It felt a little bit odd, but I thought it was at least interesting anyway. Yeah, it's true. Conan would have remained embroiled in the NWO storyline, obviously still not being kicked out, which would lead to a match against TV Ray at Slamboree, which we have covered and is not great. Yeah. I can't remember if that actually made either of our worst matches of the series list, but I know it was in consideration for both. It didn't help Stevie Ray uh, in his ranking for the show overall, yeah. but that way. <laughs> our fifth match is Kidman versus Rey Mysterio Jr. for Mysterio's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. As I mentioned uh, in the previous match segment, the flock broke up so that opened up a lot of people for new gimmicks and characters. Kidman, thankfully, doing quite well with his new character. They also had the ending of the LWO storyline, which is weirdly less remembered than the flock storyline, but was a thing that existed and kept Rimitir busy for a while. So now, with that out of the way, the pair are teamed up together. It's kind of the start of the whole Filthy Animals thing that becomes more clear later on. I don't know if they're super clear about them being like a group at this point. Mm. Just They're two cruiserweight guys that are friends and they wrestle. So their whole thing is they're friend, but they're also competitive. So Ray challenges Kevin for the title and wins it on Nitro from him, using it in a move to catch him off guard. The week after that, the pair, for some reason, are booked in a tag title match against the then-champions Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit, who lose via some stuff happening involving Raven Saturn, which we'll cover for the later match. So now they're tag champions, but Kidman still has his mandatory rematch in place for the title. So on a show where you have tag champions that don't defend him, they're instead wrestling each other <laughs> for a different title. Okay. Kind of weird. There's an overlying theme of the show with a weird use of titles, let's say. Just just a bit, yeah. We'll see more of that later. Kidman comes out wearing his half of the tag titles, and Conan's kid brother comes out wearing similar camo, but has coordinated better than his big brother with a camo vest as well. Oh, wait, that's maskless Rey Mysterio. Yes, yes, it is. Nicely, he comes out with his half of the tag titles, too, along with his cruiserweight belt, of course. Mm Mm-hmm. They shake hands, all smiles, then rapid counters and a few strikes, and they lock hands, flipping and maneuvering for position. A Mysterio monkey flip earns two for both, as both shoulders are down, but Mysterio amazingly floats over from a prone position, and mostly lands on his feet after a Kidman monkey flip. 
then counters a Kidman tilt-a-whirl with a head scissors, soaking in applause from the crowd. That exchange was a great example of what we talked about with Lucha. Visibly cooperative, but still amazing to watch. Oh yeah, absolutely. The acrobatics continue, and Kidman catches a charging Mysterio and sends him over the top rope to the floor. Kidman seems to hesitate momentarily, then dives over the top rope onto Mysterio. Heenan wonders if cruiserweights can even have a match fully in the ring, because they love doing dives and Huna Cabanas. <laughs> Tony gives him some grief for that one. <laughs> they fight outside, and Kidman counters a Mysterio body scissors with a barricade drop, then hits a leg drop over the barricade and rolls Mysterio back in for two. Mysterio soon head scissors Kidman back outside and follows with a moonsault from the apron, but Kidman catches Mysterio on his shoulder. Kidman doesn't normally get to pull strength stunts, perk of fighting Rey Mysterio, I guess. Yeah. I like that he sort of braces on his knee, mm-hmm. then he takes one knee down, and then it gets back up as yeah. well. Kidman charges for the barricade, but Mysterio gets free, shoves him into it, and hits a spinning head scissors takedown, but accidentally rams his own face into the steps in the process with a loud crash. Yeah. Ow. Ow. That's, that's, a, that's a rough one. He moved the steps a whole, like, 0.35 Cena there. Yeah. <laughs> he then kicked him for at least another 3.5. Yeah, he's he's understandably ticked off, really just rolling around and holding his head and boots the steps away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't blame him, man. Oh, that no. had to suck. <laughs> I mean, you know, you like dub your toe on a door, you kick the door. It's not yeah. that big a deal. Back in, Mysterio earns two counts with a springboard Thez press and a springboard moonsault. Kidman counters a rope run Hurricanrana with a running powerbomb for two, and gets further two counts with a backbreaker into a slam and a sit-out powerbomb. Anderson's counts, by the way, are really fast in this match. They're consistent, but they're really, really fast. Yeah, he's trying to keep pace, obviously. Kidman slides Mysterio outside and hits a shooting star press from the apron. Tanae miscalls it as a moonsault, and Tony says he's going to have to note that on his calendar. Yeah. <laughs> Kidman, unfortunately, lands knee-to-knee with Mysterio, which did not look fun. Yeah. Kind of nurses his leg for a little bit after that. Yeah. Back in, Kidman tries a splash, but Mysterio dropkicks him in midair for two. Heenan and Tony have a nice discussion about the two being tag champs and how they don't want to hit the other guy that hard, but they have to go all out in order to win a match like this. Mysterio Super Bulldog gets two. Kidman back body drop and power slam, but Mysterio clotheslines him outside and hits an amazing rebound springboard flipping senton, then gets well-earned high fives from fans. Mm-hmm. Back in, Mysterio top rope splash, but Kidman clotheslines him out of the air for two. Heenan proposes filling Mysterio's pants pockets, which are very numerous, yes. with weapons. Tony says you wouldn't even have to take a weapon out, just kick with it in the pockets. <laughs> and I guess if you just shake him at someone, they'll scare him off the top rope as well. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. It would make more sense if he had weapons in his pocket. You'd hear, like, the jingling of metal and, like, oh, crap, he's going to kill me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tony is great here, but I think in this match, he's like sarcastic Sting from Starcade 95. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Just a totally different attitude for him all of a sudden. Mm. Mysterio gets two with a Hurricane Rana, but eats ring post on his charge. Kidman tries a powerbomb, but you can't powerbomb Ray Ray? Yeah. (laughs) The Face Buster earns Mysterio two. Kidman double-arm sit-out face buster and flipping powerbomb from the top for two. Mysterio top rope body scissors into a super bulldog, and he thinks it's over, but only gets two. Tanae points out that's the move that won him the title, so he got overconfident. Mm-hmm. 
Kidman rebound bulldog for two. Mysterio top rope guillotine leg drop, then a standing moonsault for two. Mysterio can't powerbomb Kidman. Yes. Also, why is he trying? <laughs> it's impressive that he gets him up there at all. Yeah. And to the, all the people that do the powerbomb spot. Yeah. Free Mysterio. Yeah. Kidman up top for the shooting star press, and the crowd gets to their feet in anticipation. Mm-hmm. But Mysterio shoves his foot to knock him onto the ropes, then hits a super hurricane rana and springs into the pin for the three count and the win. Mysterio, exhausted, celebrates with his belt and then walks towards Kidman as we cut to replays. Feels like we probably should have stayed with that for a moment longer for some character moments. Like, were they okay with each other or are they angry? Yeah. I don't know. No time. We are desperately out of time. Apparently. (laughs) Thoughts on this one? It was a really good match. I like that they did a lot of the same kind of stuff you saw in the Hoovey Blitzkrieg match, Mm -hmm. but I thought they had the pacing really well. Yeah. There's occasional points in that first match where they're rushing between bits. Like when Blitzkrieg goes down and Hoovey picks him up for his finish and he gets countered, that happens in like a really fast fashion. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you pause a little bit before picking him up and then he counters that, because it's crowd time to build anticipation, that kind of stuff. And there's another bit almost from the opposite angle where Blitzkrieg's ended up down in the ring and Hoovy goes to the apron. Yeah. But they seem to miscommunicate a bit on just how much time they want to wait there. Mm-hmm. So the camera is focusing on Hoovy just kind of standing there for an extended period of time. Yeah. yeah. Before he finally does a springboard in. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so we see this match in contrast. They get that balance really well. Mm-hmm. They hit a big move, let the crowd react, you know, go for a pin. So everything happens. Essentially, it's digested, put it in a weird way. And then the next thing happens. It's not done so quickly that it loses impact over time. Right. There's nice little bits of character as well, where like Bibble Ray being overconfident, stuff like that. I definitely feel for poor Ray hitting his head in those steps. That could oh, not have felt good. Yeah, like, yeah. Which is kind of weirdly funny because there's a discussion about the trash can not being a dangerous weapon. But then the steps would be quite, quite effective, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, those are actually steel, not aluminum, but still. Yeah. But yeah, credit to Ray, too, because he could have taken a move like that and it really affected the match in a negative way. Not that it would stop him from working the match, but it could have really hurt the pace. He could have mm-hmm. been thrown off for the injury, but he, if he didn't know he was hurt, if he saw the second half, he wouldn't necessarily know. I'm, I'm really impressed with how he continues after that and with how Kidman continues after clearly hurting his knee yes. on the, the shooting star press onto the outside. Both of them, like you said, you'd be hard-pressed to detect any change in their performance Mm -hmm. after that point. The announcers actually do a good job of making it part of the story all the same by saying, oh, they've slowed down a little bit, probably because Ray got his bell rung and stuff like that. But they could have left that comment out, and you would not really have been able to tell that much. It's very, very impressive how well they carry on. I kind of like the accidental foreshadowing of Kidman hitting his shooting star press from the apron to the floor because he's not going to hit it in the ring at all. Yeah. I'm a little confused by his casual pedigree, though. <laughs> it's just yes. so weird. He just casually does to relate to his pedigree. And it's 1999. It's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. I forget what I called it. It was a double underhook sit-out face buster, I think I said, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And it's a pedigree. Yeah. It's, it's totally Triple H's pedigree. He just hits it like it's nothing. And it gets no more reaction than any other move, so like no one else is paying attention to it either. <laughs> yeah, this is so weird. 
as good as Kidman's game plan was, which is, you know, really working power moves and counters, after the first time, he should not have tried the shooting star press again because it didn't work. Like, I'm going to go top rope. Oh, you counted me. Well, maybe this time you won't hop up and counter me. Oh, no, you, you did. I do love, though, I mean, the crowd is clearly into that move. Yeah. They spring to their feet as soon as he goes up there in that final moment. They're like, they can feel it coming. It's it's really cool. There's another great crowd reaction midway through it as well, where Kidman's countering uh, one of Ray's moves into a power bomb, mm-hmm. into the running power bomb, and you can hear two guys in the crowd an instant before he takes his first step in the run, yelling "power bomb!" <laughs> Just oh, like goodness. they're getting great reactions from the yeah, crowd the whole time. Absolutely. It's great. Yeah, I would agree in general. Uh, despite a couple unfortunate and painful looking flubs, this was one heck of a match. Mm-hmm. Mysterio and Kidman put on an excellent show with a series of ever more spectacular stunts mixed in with a story that nicely built from trying to just out-wrestle each other and likely keep their tag partner mostly uninjured to realizing that if they wanted to win, they had to go all out. The commentators did a great job of highlighting that as well. There's some exceptional acrobatics in this, as you'd expect with these two. Yeah. But with the exception of one slightly over-choreographed segment at the start, they keep this an actual match rather than just a collection of spots. It feels like they're taking bigger and bigger risk and hitting harder and harder to win, dialing it up as each previous level doesn't get it done. So impressive work, especially, like we said, in not getting derailed by the uh, headache and knee ache. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing with matches like this as well is that you can have big spot A and big spot B, but if you can't fill in that gap between them, then it's just not a match. It's watch me do this, watch me do this. That's right. all it is. Yeah. But you get these nice bits like Kidman jumping up the clothesline to counter Ray between things. So that like that helps it feel like more like a match and not just people doing spots. They've made it a good cohesive whole. Yeah. yeah they've exactly. got all the bridging stuff in there that you really need. Yes. In order to to have, like you said, in order for it, for it to feel like an actual match, an actual fight. Mm-hmm. You can't just do your big spots. You have to do the filler. The filler sounds bad, but no, yeah, yeah, true. All, all the all the bridging work you have. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. There's a gel that holds them together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely great match. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of interesting. So this show is April 11th. On the April 19th night show, so eight days later, there would be a match between Ramis Deere defending a cruiserweight title against Psychosis, all people, out of nowhere, Blitzkrieg, and Hutu Guerrera, who had obviously lost the week before. Psychosis actually wins the title. Okay. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Next week at Nitro, Psychosis defends the title against Rey Mysterio and loses the back. <laughs> I guess at least they were both on TV this time, unlike last year's trading everything on house shows. Oh, yes, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, so that runs that whole boss entirely pointless, as they say. <laughs> as the tag titles, the two would hold them up to Slamboree, where they're defending them in a three-team match to open the show. Okay. Tony throws to a brief video package showing Benoit and Malenko of the Horsemen versus Raven and Saturn, where Raven and Saturn think they've won the tag belts, but in fact were disqualified because Raven used the tag title as a weapon right in front of the referee. Not his smartest move. No. He got revenge by helping Mysterio and Kidman win the tag belts, and this upset the Horsemen, so the feud goes on. By the way, what I think is Raven's actual WCW theme sneaks through here, Often it's replaced on these shows on uh, Peacock anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that caw, caw, caw. Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah. 
So our sixth match is The Horsemen, Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit, accompanied by Aaron Anderson, versus Raven and Perry Saturn. Referee for this one is Charles Robinson. The Horsemen were the tag champions. They had to go through an extended whole storyline. There was a tournament they had to try and win, which they didn't. Then they had to come back and win the titles for real, which they finally got to do, only to drop them, what, 15 days later or something like that, mm-hmm. to the kind of random team of Mysterio and Kidman, with the storyline, obviously, that Raven and Saturn are feared. It's a little weird that after all their work, they get so little time to enjoy them. Yeah, which seems to be a theme in 99. Yeah, it's a little bit. And even more in 2000. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 2001, they kind of dug back a little bit. To be fair, everybody has uh, has short title reigns in 2001 because the company's only around for three months. Right. <laughs> but three months for a title reign is massively long for this period of time. F- fair. <laughs> the kind of odd couple, but quite successful tag team of Raven and Saturn are, I guess, just petty, really. They got caught cheating and didn't win the match. Not like the horsemen cheat behind the back and cost them the match. They lost, I would assume, relatively fair and square, but then cost them a match later. Yeah. So this match really feels like it's supposed to be a tag title match, but no, let's put the titles on Kidman and Ray for some reason and have them not defend on pay-per-view. Because <laughs> why not? We get the horseman theme this year. Yes! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Arn accompanies Malenko and Benoit, but Arn is too cool to wear this year's honestly kind of crappy horseman t-shirt, so he just wears black. Fair enough. Peacock proves me right by replacing Raven's theme with his WWE one for this entrance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somebody just missed the video package, I guess. Saturn wears chainmail, a vinyl skirt, and yellow contacts, and he and Raven lug a table out with them. I like this new version of the public enemy, Al. Eh, we'll see. Tony says Saturn claims he was never a member of the flock. He was just Raven's friend. Sure. Seems to me like he was a member of the flock, though. Yeah, it's extremely not true. Yeah. The crowd starts playing with a beach ball. Jerks. Yes. Saturn out-wrestles Benoit, but Benoit chucks him outside. Saturn fights off both horsemen and tags Raven. Raven clotheslines Benoit as Saturn sweeps Benoit's legs for two. Back to Saturn, and Raven suplexes Benoit into a Saturn top rope splash for two. Back to Raven, and they try to double-team Benoit some more, but he drop-kicks Raven out of the ring, and Malenko and Arn beat Raven up while Saturn accidentally distracts Robinson. The horsemen earn two counts off a Malenko suplex, Benoit backdrop, and a monster Benoit clothesline. Mm -hmm. Robinson almost misses a Raven roll-up as he's distracted by Malenko, and Tanay implies that he's biased due to being pals with Ric Flair. The horsemen wear Raven down, but he finally makes the tag to Saturn, who runs wild on the horseman, including Arn, who bumps off the apron to the floor, which seems rather inadvisable given he retired for health reasons. Yeah. Saturn beats Benoit up, but Malenko sneaks in to hit a nasty right hook. But Raven saves with an electric chair drop as Saturn adds a crossbody. Great double teams in this one. Mm, yeah. Benoit breaks up a Saturn Death Valley driver and hits a German suplex, assisted by a Malenko dropkick. Benoit and Raven spill outside, and Malenko hits a double underhook powerbomb into the Texas Cloverleaf. Saturn eventually gets the ropes, to a huge howl of disappointment from Arn. Yeah. (laughs) 
Saturn Death Valley Driver for two as Benoit saves with the swan dive headbutt. That earns two for Malenko, shocking Arn, who was already climbing in to celebrate. Arn's dumbfounded expression is pure gold. It's amazing, yeah. Great. (laughs) Benoit and Malenko trade off wearing Saturn down and earn two counts with a Benoit backbreaker and Malenko knee drop. Malenko works a sleeper hold, and Raven breaks that up, but Benoit switches in without a tag to get two on Saturn off the sleeper, and again with a bridging Northern Lights suplex. They keep trading off, but Saturn earns two off a sunset flip on Benoit, while Malenko was legal. Hmm. Belly-to-back suplex by Saturn, and he makes the hot tag to Raven, which is high on my list of things I never thought I would say. Yeah, right? <laughs> Raven runs wild on the horseman, and Saturn throws a chair into the ring, so Raven drop toe holds Benoit onto the chair. DQ? Nah. Nah. If you wanted evidence that Charles Robinson is not biased towards the horseman, there you go. Yeah, right? Saturn sets Malenko on Chekhov's table, but Arn saves Malenko as Saturn dives, so only Saturn goes through the table. Malenko pulls a DDP by shoving the chair into Raven's face. Raven really should have seen that coming. Yes. But Raven hits the even flow and goes for the pin, only for Arn to climb in, grab the chair, and as Robinson lectures him, act innocent and leave after leaving the chair on Raven's head. Benoit hits the swan dive headbutt onto the chair on Raven. I'm sure I would have thought that spot was awesome in 1999, but it's 2022, and I know where stuff like that leads, Benoit. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. A barely conscious Malenko rolls on top for the three count and the win. Anderson and Malenko help Benoit up, and we can see he's bleeding, looks like from the bridge of the nose. Yeah. The horsemen celebrate as Malenko and Anderson help Benoit walk up the ramp. Thoughts on this one? That was a good match. I thought they had a good competitive nature to it. Early on, especially, they really tell the story that, in spite of them not being a famous tag team, especially compared to the Horsemen, Raven and Saturn have good double teams together. Because mm-hmm. they have longer history than you would think watching WCW. Though they also say they knew each other in high school, which I don't think is really true. <laughs> I don't know on that one. Yeah. I know there's some weird stuff with the Raven's backstory in ECW like involving summer camp as like a kid, but <laughs> pretty sure that involves Sandman and not Saturn. And I don't get those two mixed up pretty easily. So it'd I'm- be hilarious if it just turned out that literally every single wrestler in ECW had attended the same summer camp as kids. That would be pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it tells a good story that they are able to fight back and it only comes to the horsemen cheating to get an advantage and then hold it. Mm-hmm. They do a nice job with that, showing them constantly trying to fight from underneath. It's weird seeing Raven as the strong, competitive babyface, for sure. It is, yes. Hey, kids, here's your role model, the cult leader. (laughs) Yes. Never mind the fact that they sort of casually retconned his backstory earlier the year where he's actually a spoiled rich kid. (laughs) Chastity's his sister and the little thing with the trust fund that they basically abandoned at this point because no one really cared about it, I guess. It's a fairly interesting story idea, but they did no follow-through with it because it's WCW, so... Yeah. It's just kind of a random footnote that, oh yeah, by the way, Raven's actually rich this whole time. For me, the hardcore element is really not necessary. Right. It's definitely an example, not even just the awkwardness of the whole Benoit aspect of it. It really feels like the whole thing in this company at this point of, ECW is really successful, let's be ECW. 
well, like they can't fully commit to it. So they'll have a normal tag team match where a table spot and chair spot happen. Yeah. And again, there's no real good answer to why, like you get why the swan dive at the end is not a DQ because Robinson is not looking at it because he's looking at Arn. Yeah. Who is doing a great innocent act as he leaves the ring. Of course. But some of the other stuff, it's like, it's unclear why it doesn't lead to a disqualification, which is admittedly kind of a problem tonight in a couple other matches as well. Yes. At least one of them tries to address it in a yes, silly, silly way. Yes, fair. Yeah. Yeah, but still. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't think those spots were really necessary at all. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of, these guys are from ECW, so let's do a little bit of hardcore. But not a lot of hardcore, just a little bit. No, yeah, just just a little taste of hardcore. Yeah. So it's it's funny, because the idea is, let's watch this hardcore match, see all this hardcore stuff, but then let's also watch every other match for that, too. Yeah. Practically. The finish is obviously extremely awkward to watch, given who it is, and it has a big head trauma bit. You can see him try to block it more than he does, but he does not. Mm-hmm. Force to do a good job blocking that. Yeah, yeah, he really clearly hits, like, direct on on that one, and it's just, uh It's a creative spot, yeah. but it should not have been done, at, at the very least, not with a headbutt. No. Elbow drop, splash, I don't know. Leg drop, something like that, maybe, but yeah. just find something else for him to do in that spot because it definitely is mm-hmm. an injury, you know, that yeah. happens there. Well, between this and the, the latter rolling spot with Sandman in the second match, there's a weird logic of instead of putting a guy on a weapon and then hitting him with something, you put the weapon on them and you land on the weapon, yeah. take like 80% yeah. of the damage. It's bizarre. Sandman just dumb for. Like, Messick is backup for rolling on a guy, and he's like, no impact from that. Yeah. It's a little odd, too, um, timing-wise, that they don't quite get it timed perfectly. Like, Raven has enough time where you really think he would recognize, oh, there's a chair on my head, maybe yeah, I should right? move <laughs> before Benoit jumps. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite timed well, for sure. Yeah. Aside from that, I thought, yeah, excellent tag match. It's filled with great teamwork and some really interesting and cool double team spots by both teams. Arn nicely adds to the match on the outside, providing some great reactions and very occasional interference without distracting from what's going on in the ring. Mm-hmm. There's a good story here of Raven and Saturn's toughness and guts versus the Horseman's typical efficiency and discipline, and it remains unpredictable all the way to the finish with a lot of late match swings that could have been the ending but weren't. It's a terrific tag match, and it kind of made me flash back to some Anderson's tag matches, mm. even as it felt very modern with the spectacular double teams. There seemed to be that sort of storyline going on in yeah, it. Yeah, sure. So, really excellent work. Yeah, they're torn a little bit because they're going for the strong heel team can control the match by keeping the advantage and changing out and doing this and that. But the strong singular faces can't do as well because they're constantly double teamed or behind. But at the same time, when they can double team, they do quite well. So mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of half and half there, but it's, it's still well done. They've done a good storyline for it overall, I think. Yeah. As mentioned before, the two teams would be in a three-team tag match to open Slamboree. Okay. Against Kidman and Mysterio. Tony says, tonight we've got the final match in a tournament to crown a new United States champion and throws to a video of Ric Flair announcing said tournament. I look at my Rolex! It's 12 o'clock midnight! Last night, 
I can't find Scott Hall anywhere. So Scott Hall, you, as of last night, because I say so, are no longer the U.S. champion. Poor, poor red and black Wolfpack. You have stripped him. I have stripped him of the title. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a title tournament, a U.S. title tournament, WCW style. It starts tonight between Bigelow and Ming. The conclusion will be at Spring Stampede, and we'll have a new U.S. champion, WCW style. Not only Scott Steiner, Chris Jericho, and Steiner got the win and advanced on in the tournament, but he was Saturn and Booker T going at it. And Booker T and Saturn, two of the finest athletes, and it was Booker T who came away with the win over Perry Saturn, getting out of the attempt of the DVD. Chris Jericho had lost, as we saw earlier, to Big Papa Pump, but that did not stop the King of Loopholes. You want him in? Is that what you want? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I like him. So you I told you that. I'm, I'm back in the tournament? I'm back in the tournament. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how I'm going to explain that. He was back in the tournament, and he faced Booker T on WCW Monday Nitro. He was back in the tournament because of an injury to Kurt Hennig putting back in. But it was Big Papa Pump, Scott Steiner, who came into the ring, interfered with the steel chair, and caused a disqualification, allowing Booker T to score the win. Big Papa Pump came out, though, guys, when these two guys had another match. This was a return match. And even though Booker T was already in the finals, this match happened on Thunder on Wednesday night, Mike. This really was a strange situation because Chris Jericho applied the lion tamer to Booker T. But who came into the ring to make the save with the slapjack? Stevie Ray. So Booker T wins on Thunder and, of course, wins on Nitro to propel himself into the finals here against Big Papa Pump. With that in mind, here's David Respectable little video package here, I think, that went over the tournament events pretty much fine, but we'll let Al cover those momentarily. I did notice one thing that was a little bit weird, though, is they start with clearly showing the Bigelow versus Meng match, and then they don't show how the winner of that match gets eliminated. That Yeah, that's true. <laughs> not important, I guess. Just skip over them. Yeah. Bam Bam Bigelow and Meng are not people that I would skip over. No, no, no. <laughs> so our seventh match is Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner versus Booker T for the vacant United States Heavyweight Championship as the tournament finale. Referee for this one is Johnny Boone. Scott Hall won the U.S. title early in the year, but is absent. But it's probably a mix of real and kayfabe. It's hard to tell from this point. Mm -hmm. Once they made his gimmick that he was drunk for a while, it's hard to tell where fiction and reality intersect with that stuff. Yeah. Part of the idea is that Flair, as president for life, which is an important plot point, he's president for life. So, I mean, he should still be president right now, not that it really matters. <laughs> but in his own house, he's in charge of WCW. It's getting a bit power-hungry. Although, he doesn't really do anything with the idea that he stripped the title from Scott Hall and then take it away from the NWO. So, I guess there's kind of a pettiness to him because, you know... He steals the world title from them, so I'm going to take this away from you too, but it's kind of just a means to the end because Scott Hall is not actually around. Yeah. Sadly. 
if they like did something where they implied the horsemen were responsible for Scott Hall's absence or something sure, like that, be something. then you could do it, yeah. Or if like, he made a point of putting both of them in the tournament in different spots to try and get an advantage, but they're nowhere near that. Right. Like there's half of a story here, but not the rest of it to make mm-hmm. it quite fit. Like what does he have to gain from Meng becoming US champion? I don't get it. Maybe he hopes that he can get Meng to wear his uh, bodyguard suit out. Oh, yeah. And Meng said, only if you get me in the U.S. title tournament. Oh, okay. <laughs> That'd be worth it then. Yeah. Also, in the video package, Chris Jericho managed to lose twice in the tournament. Just just a, a weird thing to do. I'm, let's put him in the tournament and have him lose twice. Notably, he loses to Scott Steiner and Booker T, who are both in the finals. And then he has another match against Booker T, apparently, where he also loses, right? Yes. <laughs> Poor Chris Jericho. I mean, you're wondering why he's on his way out. I do love the very subdued bit with him and Flair in the office in the video package, at least that they show, where Chris Jericho, more polite and quiet than I have ever seen Chris Jericho in my life. Yes. is just talking to, to Ric Flair. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Whether he's letting him back in. <laughs> yeah. Although I don't think it's brought up in commentary, it's kind of notable as well. So Booker T is TV champion at this point. And the person he won the TV title from is Scott Steiner. Oh, okay. They do mention that he's TV champ, but they don't mention that part, no. Yeah. Now to get to my point again about titles, the TV champion is not defending his belt. He's trying to try to win a second belt. Yeah. I, I have less of a problem with that one just because it is the TV title, and I feel like you have an argument if you say we're primarily defending that one on the TV shows, but but it yeah. is frequently a pay-per-view. Right. Depends, yeah. And to be fair, what else are you watching pay-per-view on? Movie theater. We're still doing that, right? No, we, they stopped doing that in the mid-80s, Bob. <laughs> NWO Wolfpack theme count, one. Scott Steiner is out first. He has his own face on the crotch of his tights, which is an interesting decision. He knows where he wants you to look, obviously. As mentioned, there was a worse crotch-related artwork piece than Juventus Carreras. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how he got away with the barely altered Superman logos on the sides either. Yeah, it's bizarre. Must have DDP's lawyer. I guess so. Steiner yells at the fans all the way down to the ring. Tony mentions Buff Bagwell's recent return to in-ring competition. Was that from last year's injury? He recovered a little faster than that. Basically, they rushed through a storyline where he was out injured, came back. They pushed it that he might be a face because... Yeah, sympathetic because he's injured, but then he immediately comes to heal again. Oh, okay. No, what happened more recently is that Bagwell was sort of acting as managerial role for Scott Steiner, and he was instrumental in a, accidentally in him losing the TV title, Booker T. He tries to make peace with Scott Steiner, and surprise, surprise, Scott Steiner is not about making peace. So Scott Steiner attacks him and takes him off TV for a bit for that. Scott Steiner read War and Peace, but it was just war. Yes. <laughs> he, were, he read the important part. Yeah. Booker, TV champ, comes out with that belt around his waist. I'm not really fond of his outfit tonight. It's black with silver flames. I think he's got another one that's silver with black flames, and I like that one a little bit better. I'm thinking black with like a bright blue flame. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah. Could see that potentially working. Steiner threatens Dave Penzer, then goes to let an excited, screaming lady feel his muscles. Heenan wonders how much she charges to haunt a house. (laughs) 
Steiner just kind of wanders around ringside for a while, getting in arguments with fans. One guy hilariously tries to muscle pose at Scott Steiner. At Scott Steiner. Yeah. Couple guys, actually. Neither is even close. No. Tony at least gives us a good line, re-fans annoying Steiner. Well, we've proved that many of our ringside fans had a lobotomy before they arrived. Yeah. (laughs) Again, really good snark from Tony tonight. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Steiner finally gets in and pretty much gets right back out. Back in, and Booker gets the better of a couple exchanges, but arm drags Steiner, who rolls out again. Yeah, right. He wanders, then finally gets back in, clubbing Booker, but Booker hits a flying clothesline and arm-ringing kick, then throws Steiner outside. Fortunately, he follows with a flying splash. Booker wins an outside brawl, and back inside, Steiner calls for a timeout because he's been working so hard. Yes. Booker kicks him because he's had enough breaks. Yes. Booker dominates with some great big swinging clotheslines. He gets a really good rotation on those. Mm-hmm. But as he tries corner punches, Steiner crotches him on the ropes, then slugs him out to the floor, where he beats him up and hits him with a chair, which doesn't draw a DQ, as Tony notes that Boone is scared of Steiner. Although, I want to diagram that chair shot, though. Okay, so... <laughs> yes. He doesn't swing the chair. He puts his hand over the front top part of the chair and sort of nudges him with his hand with a chair behind it. Yes. It's, it's the Triple H actual sledgehammer sledgehammer shot. Yes. Where you can always tell if he has a fake one or a real one because Correct. of how he swings it. Yes. <laughs> it's like, he's this big, intimidating guy, and that's the weakest way to do that kind of thing. It's bizarre. Yeah. Maybe that's technically why it doesn't get DQ'd for it, because he actually hit him with his hand, not the chair. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Though that would still be a fist load, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Back in. Steiner line, and Steiner drops an elbow, then does push-ups. It's too easy, he proclaims. Steiner beats Booker up and chokes him, intimidating Boone as he does. Heenan says Boone's aware if he DQ'd Steiner, he'd be taking a trip to the hospital. Steiner earns two counts with a backbreaker, then a belly-to-belly suplex and a muscle pose pin. He grabs Boone and screams in his face, and Boone does a terrific job of looking terrified. Which may mean it's legitimate. Hopefully acting terrified. (laughs) Yes. Steiner punts Booker in the nuts. And Boone warns Steiner while backing away. (laughs) Yeah. Heenan proposes that Tanae go stop the match, but notes he probably wouldn't be coming back. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Bear hug by Steiner. Ugh, Tony says, expressing my sentiments exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it is the worst bear hug. (laughs) He's not even off the ground. Yeah, a guy like Scott Steiner ought to be able to do better than that. Yeah. So Booker T is just standing up, facing Scott Steiner, who occasionally sort of squeezes his wrists in a little bit. Yeah. And he's like, ah! Like, uh, no. Booker tries to free himself, but Steiner belly-to-belly suplexes him. Another suplex, but Booker floats over and DDTs him. Booker fights back and gets a great kick combo and a series of clotheslines but Steiner pulls poor Boone in the way. Boone is down, and Booker checks on him. Steiner tries an ambush, but Booker counters with a beautiful jumping axe kick and builds to the Harlem sidekick, but Boone's still down. Booker counts three himself, but he's not a ref, so it doesn't count. See, if he had worn a black and white outfit, he wouldn't have counted. Yeah, see, his mistake was wearing silver. That's right. He's NWO 2000. Oh. (laughs) Booker revives Boone, but Steiner knocks both of them down. 
Booker Spinebuster, but Steiner knocks him off balance on the top rope, hits a super Frankensteiner, and drags Boone over, forcing his hand to count one, two, but Booker kicks out. A barely conscious Boone does signal that was a legit two count, despite his hand being manipulated by Steiner. Yeah. Heenan says Steiner's going to blame everyone but himself. Steiner produces a taped-up object and tries to punch Booker, but Booker dodges, hits a kick combo, and tries a suplex. But Steiner slugs him with the object as they come down, then hides the object. Randy Anderson had come down to check on Boone, but Steiner drags Boone to the ring, then pins the unconscious Booker for the dazed ref to deliver the three-count for the win and the title. Couldn't have just pulled in poor Randy Anderson for that instead? <laughs> That's He just really didn't like that Boone guy. Come on, Randy, help a guy out. Right? NWO Wolfpack theme count, two. Steiner takes the belt and celebrates with muscle poses. There's an interesting juxtaposition in the crowd. Signs right next to each other proclaim, Flair sucks and Flair is God. Hopefully those two fans never see each other. Yes. Thoughts on this one? I'm definitely of two minds about this match. So, the beginning where it just stalls and stalls and stalls. Just like the one he does at the next show we've already covered, Slamperie, it's way too long. Mm-hmm. Way, way too long. Yes. When they actually get in the ring for the middle portion of the match, I thought it was actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Booker and Steiner definitely have chemistry together, as was shown when they're like 600 matches against each other over the next year and a half. The fact that Booker T's final WCW match is against Scott Steiner should say something about that. Mm-hmm. So I really like that part of the match. So I kind of go, okay, well, they're getting this stuff out of the way because in the other match, it was constantly being stopped for him doing that nonsense. He'd be in control, just leave the ring and yell at people some more. Yeah. So that match had no flow to it. This one keeps the flow for the most part after that part's over with, which is good. But then we reached the Scott Diner just can't be DQ'd section and I did not like it. (laughs) I get this door they're going for. The ref scared of him won't count DQ, but it it's one of those ones I think would work if he had immediate comeuppance. Like if he tries to do it, something that would only get DQ'd and gets hit and pinned by Booker T, you go, okay, that's why you do it. Let him do all that. Mm-hmm. Build and build and immediately have it not work. Instead, he does like 10 different things that are illegal in the same match. And gets to win anyways. Mm -hmm. And after doing things so blatantly, he then hides his cheating at the end. That is true, yeah. I think that would actually make it work a little better as well. If they actually just did say Boone is legitimately so terrified that he sees the object and still won't DQ him. Yeah. Just go fully with that. Yeah. Or if if you're going to have Booker T win, for instance, have him pull that weapon out or whatever that's supposed to be a... A vague piece of metal wrapped in athletic tape, which somehow holding it makes you punch way harder, apparently. Depleted uranium. Oh, okay. (laughs) If he goes to grab the Booker T, kicks him and takes it and uses it and wins. That Mm -hmm. works. It's a weird thing, too, because I've seen a version of that finish, the whole object in my fist thing and then hide it in like three different Randy Savage matches from the 80s. Yes. As a very old school, interesting, but also outdated sort of thing to do. It's in fact the ending, I believe, of Ricky Steamboat versus Tully Blanchard from Starcade 84, if I that, recall correctly. That is as well, yes. <laughs> but no, I remember because I watched one of those DVD compilations about how great Randy Savage was after he died. 
And they had like three different matches from tier, and they used the same finish. I'm like, guys, maybe pick different matches under the exact same finish. Because they're all like MSG house show, and you could have done better. Yeah. But yeah, so it's weird. It's basically the reverse of the Disco Inferno Conan match. The first part and the last part I don't like, but the middle part I like. Okay, yeah, fair. <laughs> so they can almost put together really good matches. They just can't quite do them in the same match. Yeah, I thought this was a decent match when it was actually occurring. Yes. There's so much stalling, particularly early on. We're probably halfway through the match, honestly, before it starts being a match rather than single spots separated by Steiner going to yell at the crowd. That really stops it from gaining much momentum. Mm -hmm. They do have tremendous crowd interaction, though, so this is probably one of those matches that was really fun or terrifying to be there for, Yeah, but not as much fun to watch. Mm Mm-hmm. Once they actually got going, they set up a good story of Booker frustrating Steiner and Steiner scaring the hell out of poor Johnny Boone so he could cheat with impunity. I didn't mind that as much as you, I think. I I was liking where that was going, largely because Boone was honestly the highlight of the match for me. He did a good job in his part. Yeah, he did a great job displaying sheer terror and actually displaying near unconsciousness later. Mm. One of the better referee cells that I've seen. Yeah. The match did build to some very nice spots in the late match. And the ending went off fine, but it just took too long getting to the action, so it kind of lost me, and I could never quite get back into it. It's kind of a consistent problem with heel Scott Steiner, unfortunately. He's great at his moves, but terrible at pacing. It's a little funny, too, if you think about it. So Scott Steiner waits till Booger T is picking him up for a suplex to try and knock him out. Yeah. That's the worst time I try to knock something. Yeah, like, and he does it. He actually does the punch when he's suspended directly yeah. overhead with his head facing the ground. I was like, at least let him start bringing you down in suplex position yeah. first so you're going to fall on your back. Right, right. <laughs> you're get very lucky that Booker falls unconscious backwards instead of straight down. I will say, too, well, obviously, I prefer clean finishes and, you know, don't like DQ in general. You could have done a funny DQ finish for this. Have Scott Steiner do the bit with his weapon and it's concealed from Johnny Boom, but Randy Anderson, who's right there, sees it and yeah. just DQs him from the outside and just runs away. <laughs> and poor Johnny Boone's left there having great. <laughs> Especially if you do it with Randy Anderson having no sympathy for Johnny Boom whatsoever. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. Steiner just murders poor Johnny Boone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He can have fun with that. Well, Johnny Boone wouldn't have fun with that, but yeah, everyone else would. <laughs> But yeah, I do agree. I think Booker T does a pretty good job with the Scott Steiner heel formula overall. He makes something of it. But yeah, you just still have way too much in the way of stalling with him. Yeah, he has the right level of dynamic to his Mm -hmm. offense that you get a lot out of the moments when they are actually wrestling. Yes. So it makes up for a lot of that. Yeah. Booker T would get involved in a bit of family drama, which they started to tease a bit in the video package involving Stevie Ray before his title match at Slamboree against Rick Steiner. Okay. As for Scott Steiner, he'd be challenged for the new title by Buff Bagwell, which, in case you missed me talking about it, was not good. Yeah. So if you're, if you're listening to these in order, good luck. <laughs> we go to the internet table, where Mark Madden asks Rey Mysterio his thoughts on the match with Kidman as an animated horse gallops across the bottom of the screen for some reason. Why not? No one turns on Ray's headset, nor that of Madden's co-host, whose name escapes me, so it's very hard to hear this. Mysterio says something about it being a difficult match, and they gave each other their best. 
The other guy asks him something about if there's going to be problems between him and Kidman, and Mysterio says, no, it was a one-time match. He's got the belt, but now they're tag partners again, and they'll take on all comers, Raven, Saturn, Dean, and Chris. It's funny to hear him call the horsemen just by their first names. Yeah. Well, they're friends, you know. Madden asks if the bond is as tight, and we cut. (laughs) I guess they just couldn't fix the headset or something, so they cut. It was a decent enough promo from what I heard of it, which wasn't much. I gotta say, of all people, if you're gonna cut a mic, why not Mark Madden's mic? <laughs> Just, like, all the time. Yeah. Break forever. That'd be great. We cut to a video package that would like us to know that Goldberg and Kevin Nash do, in fact, exist. Oh, that's confirmed, then. Good. It spells out their names letter by letter, in case you weren't sure how they were spelled, with annoying sound effects, then shows Goldberg and Nash beating folks up, then spells their names again, just to make sure you know. Not a good video package, really, and it tells us basically nothing. Mm, yeah. Was that Slamboree 99 that had video packages like that, too? Yeah. Or just like so. constant advisement that these wrestlers exist, but not telling you anything about their storylines? Yeah. Apparently, that's the 99 thing. Sizzle reels of the, them doing stuff, but not in context or anything happening. Yeah. The show. Yeah. So, our eighth match is Kevin Nash with Lex Luger and Elizabeth. Versus Goldberg. Referee for this one is Mickey J. The important show to remember for this match is Starcade 1998. Goldberg is 173-0, defending his title against Kevin Nash, who managed to pin him after at least three run-ins and Scott Hall using a taser. Also worth noting that Kevin Nash was booking this match, <laughs> in case you didn't guess that. I do recall that actually being a pretty decent match, except for the ending, though. No, yeah. Except for the whole idea that they just killed the streak and gave it to Nash for no good reason. And then, obviously, though, it happened afterwards. Yeah. The match itself was fine. I was surprised how good it was, actually. Mm-hmm. Mid my low bar became a Nash matches. <laughs> Aside, you know, I, I was genuinely impressed by it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that means that Goldberg finally had a loss, and it's due Kevin Nash. Since then, he's had no losses. Mind you, he can be in multi-person matches or tag matches, and he doesn't win, but he'd never pinned. Right, yeah. That's the way you get around that kind of stuff. At this point, he is whatever number he is and won. He's regained his streak, although it's you know, nowhere near the same number it was at this point. Worth noting that during the build to this, we have a Nitro where they're in Montreal, and there's an in-ring confrontation between Bret Hart and Goldberg. Mm. That's the famous Goldberg spears Bret Hart, but is knocked out by it. And Bret Hart pulls up his hockey jersey reveal that he's wearing a metal plate strapped to his stomach. Nice. And if you're wondering what that matters, it doesn't. <laughs> Bret Hart didn't come back until late in the year, thus leading to the Starcade match with him and Goldberg. Yeah. So like six months from now, remember that video on Nitro, because then it matters. That is a cool idea for a spot, though, at least. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. But I guess is emblematic of what you've been describing for, it sounds like, most of the stories on this show, that they have like a half or two thirds of a story and don't actually do the whole thing. Yeah. Well, especially bear in mind, too, Bret Hart at this point is out with a groin injury. So they're not going to build to a match right away. Right. So why not just not have him show up at all until he's ready to come back? Yeah, just save that idea. Yeah. Save that idea. Use it when it matters. They're like, no, no, we're in Montreal. Let's do it now. Screw it. <laughs> but yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. Kevin Nash is successful. He's got the only win on Goldberg's record, so he wants to get it back. NWO Wolfpack theme count three. 
Nash comes out accompanied by Lex Luger and Elizabeth. Luger has an interesting NWO shirt on. It's the logo with a mixed red and white background. Mm-hmm. Kind of looked like a version of the Union Jack to me. It, it does, yeah. Goldberg comes out alone and does the pyro shower thing, which always looks cool. Mm-hmm. He gets a really good breathing smoke shot this time, too. Tony is annoyed at Entertainment Weekly for daring to ask why pro wrestling is so hot and proclaims it's always been hot. Heenan says wrestling is hot because golf doesn't allow run-ins. Yeah. That would be interesting. They should probably allow that sometime in Mario Golf. It is to be so braggadocious about how wrestling being hot when you're on the downswing. Yeah, well, I mean, gotta keep morale up. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Jay signals for the bell. But Nash takes a microphone and gives us a hey yo in honor of Hall. Nash says Goldberg might not know it, but Wolfpack is in the house. I think he knows it. I think he's Steve. Kind of, yeah. It seems fairly obvious when he's looking right at you. Yeah, yeah, right. Tanae points out that the hey yo was also a taunt at Goldberg, reminding him of a Starcade loss thanks to Hall. Mm-hmm. Goldberg slowly manages to push the larger Nash to a corner. But Nash throws him into it and lands knee strikes, punches, and elbows in between boot chokes for an extended period of time, then earns two counts with a clothesline and sidewalk slam. Goldberg crawls for the ropes and pulls himself up with them, so Nash chokes him there and drops on him, giving a confident smile. But Goldberg ducks a big boot and hits a high-velocity flying shoulder block, then muscles Nash over for a suplex. Goldberg dodges Nash's punches and kicks, returns his own, and sidekicks Nash down for a huge cheer. Goldberg tries the spear, but Nash leapfrogs him, and Goldberg slams right into poor Mickey J. Yeah. With the ref out, Luger smacks Goldberg with a chair. Nash tries the jackknife powerbomb, but Goldberg slugs him in the balls, and apparently holds on. Yeah. Heenan references the old iron claw holds. Ow. Mm-hmm. Luger charges, but Goldberg disposes of him with a big boot for a wonderful Luger cell. Yes. <laughs> Get a good whoa! <laughs> You gotta get one in there somewhere. Goldberg spears Nash to more massive cheers. Goldberg readies himself, then muscles Nash up and hits the jackhammer for the three count and the win. I just realized both these guys have finishers that start with jack. Oh, yeah. That's it's a true. weird coincidence. Goldberg did a respectable jackhammer on Nash, I thought. He just doesn't do the bit where he pauses in the middle with his opponent suspended because, yeah, that ain't happening. No. But he had good form in it. No, he did, yeah. Retribution is Goldberg's, Tony yells in a pretty great call, as Mickey J, still clutching his stomach where Goldberg speared him, raises his hand before collapsing and rolling out of the ring. <laughs> we got some really great ref selling going on tonight, actually. They do, yeah. Luger checks on the fallen Nash, who, to his credit, is really super selling that jackhammer, still down. Nash finally gets up only as the replays come to a close, leaving to the booze of the crowd. Thoughts on this one? So this is the other match in the show I thought was booked really weirdly. Yes. Kevin Nash just comes right in and just dominates Goldberg for, it feels like a real long time. I would say it's probably half the match time. Yeah. And it's not just like he hits him a bunch of times. He does the throw him in the, into the corner back and forth bit, which is a weird bit where Goldberg like sort of half runs and stops. It's, they don't quite have their timing right on something. Yeah. Yeah. Because when Nash is going to hit the sidewalk slam. Yeah. I think Goldberg maybe thinks it's going to happen the first time, but Nash wanted to do two throws and then do it. Yeah. So he, yeah, he runs full speed to one corner, runs full speed the first half of the way to the second corner, then almost stops, but then sort of gets shoved away and then goes through. Yeah. 
So it's one of those ones where I'll give him credit more for a subverting expectation because Goldberg as the fast starter absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's literally what he's still doing today. Yes. He had to set up Matt the other day and did that. His only thing now is he just spews you right away because he, he doesn't have the Carter he used to at this point, to be fair. So I, I think if they just done that for this match and not done it for the Disco Conan match, I'd have less problem with it. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing the same thing I thought was weird, but also twice. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. Getting past that, Goldberg's comeback is really strong as he's Goldberg. He has a good intensity and energy to mm-hmm. it. Nash is willing to sell. Nash is actually willing to almost sort of do a spin kick, which is interesting. He has two punches and then does like a half spin kick and he raises his leg up to about, I don't know, about stomach level, you want to say? Yeah. For that kick. Which is unexpected for Kevin Nash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting. His flying shoulder block is kind of terrifying because he goes past him. <laughs> yeah, Goldberg nearly spills out of the ring on yeah. the thing. It's it's hilarious. It tells him they couldn't time it better than have Luger like be positioned, like take the end of the dive, like <laughs> slide dive into him. Speaking of Luger, well, we saw the probably the worst chair shot of the show with whatever Booker T had done to by Scott Steiner. Luger's was not great either. He holds it backwards. Yes. <laughs> he holds it backwards, and I think because he's aiming at Goldberg's head, and he's holding away, he, he's really cautious about it. Yeah. So it's more of a hit than nudge with the back of your hand, but it's not much better. Yeah, it was a very strange-looking chair shot. It's Yeah. Luger has been around for long enough. He knows how to do a chair shot. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's bizarre. It's nice also that they got around the screwy finish. Goldberg's down, comes back. They tease like he might lose again, and then he overcomes it. So it's a nice subverting of that. Mm-hmm. It's a nice sort of riding the ship of Goldberg, who is otherwise booked really strongly in WCW. It's just they abruptly kind of forgot to do that one show. Yeah. So it's it sort of them reminding, oh, yeah, Goldberg's this really strong guy who shouldn't be able to be beaten. I think they had to make it feel really close on this one mm-hmm. in order to make the other one feel like it was not a completely horrible oh, yeah. booking no, mistake. I, I had no problem with that yeah, with that part, yeah. I think they did a good job of this one of having some real tension to it around whether Nash would just win a second time, mm-hmm. despite it maybe feeling a little overextended in the beginning. Yeah. It just, it's just the way it's so one-sided yeah. at the beginning. It's like he really overpowers Goldberg and doesn't feel right. Yeah, This one was definitely a little bit odd. Like we said, it had that very slow start with a very extended beatdown of Goldberg, who actually didn't even leave the corner for about the first quarter to third of the match. That's true, yeah. From there, it turned into an epic super heavyweight battle if you cut out everything but the biggest spots. They would hit a big move, sell for a while or look around meaningfully, then hit another big move. So there's good character work and the big spots are appropriately big, but it feels like you're watching the highlight reel of the match rather than the match itself at times kind of the inverse of what we talked about with Ray and Kidman. Yeah. This is the example of what you get if you forget to write the bridge spots. Yeah, yeah. It feels cool still, but it doesn't feel like they've really told a complete story in this one to me. The ending did feel great, though. Jay did some epic selling of the spear. Nash played up his overconfidence so much it felt really good to see him get his comeuppance. Mm Mm-hmm. And Goldberg managing even a somewhat abbreviated jackhammer on a guy the size of Nash is legit impressive. Oh, yeah. I still had fun with this one, but it owed a lot to the atmosphere as the match itself was pretty simple. No, I agree with that. Yeah. 
So coming out of this, at Slamboree, you'd have Sting challenging Goldberg with the idea that he went to be the second person to defeat Goldberg. At this point, no one else has done it since. So that's a good story in its own. There's also a bit, I'll, I'll explain in a little more in depth after the next match, where, by the way, Sting is briefly world champion following this show. Worth noting, I'll explain more of that later. The match where he loses it, Goldberg's involved. I think there's was the idea that Goldberg was the one that stopped him from winning the match, so that's more personal tension between the two of them. Ah, uh, okay. They can sort of rightly blame Goldberg and say, hey, I'd be world champion if you didn't, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. As for Kevin Nash, he'd be the one to challenge for the world title at Saint-Marie, despite losing here. <laughs> Go figure. We cut to a video package for the four-way match. It's perfectly fine work again. It just goes over the four guys in the match, basically. It is a little weird in one aspect, though. Hmm. The world champion is mentioned second. Not first, and not last. Yeah. Second. That's true. It's just strange placement. You'd expect him to be highlighted one way or the other, either listing him first and then listing the challengers, or listing all the challengers and saying, can they beat the champion Ric Flair? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes those make sense, yeah. So our final match is the nature boy, Ric Flair, listing him first, thank you, mm-hmm. versus Diamond Dallas Page, versus Hulk Hogan, versus Sting, in a four corners match for Flair's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is the Macho Man, Randy Savage, accompanied by Gorgeous George. Flair would become world champion in very controversial fashion on a previous pay-per-view. He would beat Hulk Hogan, who famously would win the title via the Finger Broke of Doom. <laughs> yes. Arguably one of the worst things they ever did. Yeah, I feel pretty confident in agreeing with that one, yeah. Yeah, definitely top five. So, essentially what he does, we'll go over that more when we cover the actual show where this happens, but Flair gets the corrupt referee, Charles Robinson, to basically ignore the rules of the match for himself, mm-hmm. and thus allow him to beat Hogan. It is weird, because you watch the night after this, the commentators are actually really happy this happened. They have no problem with Flair doing all this, because they figure, well, they did it to us, so it's okay. Yeah, because Hogan's full heel NWO when he goes into that match. Correct. They kind of do a double turn during it. Yeah. Which somewhat works, I think. It mostly works. I I think they do a a fair job of it in the match, but they haven't fully cleared in the commentators, I guess, on how they're supposed to be reacting to it in in that respect. Which, if you listen back over the NWO storyline in general, this comes up occasionally that the commentators actually do just fully endorse, why don't we just cheat too? Yeah. And it's always such a strange thing when they do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, no, the entire idea is you guys are supposed to be better than them. Right, right. It's not always easy to be a better man, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's champion. Flair's got a lot of people gunning for him. He immediately has Goldberg coming right for him, which can't be a good place to be in your life. Yeah. At this point, especially. As well as Kevin Nash, who claiming that he should get the title shot because he beat Goldberg, you know, three months ago. Singh has been gone since Halloween Havoc. They wrote him off TV. So he skips the whole Frank Book of Doom, interview re-emerging thing completely. So we have no more Wolfpack Sting, which makes you happy, I'm sure. Yes, very much so. I do like the red and black coloring on him, but yeah, storyline-wise, it's not great. Never liked the outfit either, honestly. Oh. <laughs> I do recall, I think from our Starcade series, doesn't he spend like the last part of 98, 99, and 2000 out with various either actual injury or at least injury angles. Yes. 
Yeah. Leave it as a case. <laughs> yeah, so Flair has been making a point of trying to avoid all of his challengers. So now he has three of them. And on top of that, he's got Rennie Savage, who definitely has a gripe against him. I don't have mentioned that before, but Rennie Savage, over the course of his career, has six world title reign, which is pretty impressive, even if two of them last like 24 hours. All six of his world title reigns ended either the hands of Ric Flair or Hulk Hogan. Okay. So here he is, refereeing a match involving Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, only people to beat him for the world title. Actually, I think they mentioned Savage has had a beef with every single competitor in this match. True. At yeah. one point. But yeah, they don't go into detail a lot. In the yeah, I, I don't know the why, but his return is real last minute as well. Because mm-hmm. Sting's return is built up for the match, but he didn't actually show up until this show. But yeah, with Savage, he appears in the final show and talks about how he's going to be impartial, as partial as he ever was. But that's about it. It's no long build of him. It's just, by the way, we have four people and the world title. We need one more thing. Let's throw Ray Savage in here. Okay. Surprisingly, no Michael Buffer tonight. Oh, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, we actually have normal ring announcer Dave Penzer still on announcing duty for the main event. I was shocked by that. Penzer lays out the rules. All four men in the ring at the same time, one fall to a finish. Savage is out first with his new crappy generic rock guitar music that doesn't have much of a melody. It's rare that I'll prefer pomp and circumstance to something, but yeah. <laughs> if only there was a way to mix those two together. Ugh. <laughs> Strobe lights are cool, though. Yeah. Tony and Heenan are more interested in Gorgeous George. Tony talks up how Savage has been friends with and foes of each of the match competitors. Flares out next in a great red and gold robe. It is super glittery. It is very glittery, yeah. DDP is next with huge pyro for the sign of the diamond cutter. And next is Hogan, so NWO Wolfpack theme count, four. Now, do we know for sure whether we're getting the... NWO theme because it's a redub? I feel like he was also using the Wolfpack theme at this time rather than the Jimi Hendrix thing, but I'm not sure on that. Yes, sir, at some point he, inter- he was interchangeable with that. Yeah. But not, yeah. He wears the unified NWO shirt design that Luger wore, then does his normal shirt tearing act. Mixed messages? <laughs> yeah, right? Finally, out last, this is Sting. He has a nice scorpion logo on the back of his coat this year. It kind of reminded me of the Mortal Kombat dragon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tony goes over his history and the change that he's gone through from the early days of his career. Paige pairs off with Hogan and Flair with Sting, but they quickly switch dance partners, and Hogan clotheslines Flair out over the ropes. Paige opportunistically sends Hogan out too, and the beach ball's back. If I was in the crowd and that came to me, I would pop it. Yes. Hogan brawls with Flair outside as Sting and Paige fight in the ring. Sting and Paige miscommunicate a bit on a move. Paige seems to be going for a DDT, but Sting falls like it's a swinging neckbreaker. It gets two. Paige goes for the diamond cutter, but Sting shoves him away, so Paige goes for it again, but Sting clotheslines him down. Sting builds up to a stinger splash, but Flair lunges in to save at one, and Hogan follows. Hogan versus Paige and Sting versus Flair leads quickly to Flair Karma, but Paige and Sting soon end up outside, where Sting may actually hit his Stinger Splash with Paige against the barricade. Huh? Not on camera, though. No. So close. Meanwhile, Hogan beats Flair up with his weight belt and punching, and we get a Flair flop. Flair lands chops, but Hogan hulks up. You! Punch, 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 big boot, leg drop. 
but Sting and Paige have come back, and Sting stops putting the Scorpion Deathlock on Paige to break a Hogan pin on Flair. Paige rewards Sting by dumping him outside again and follows. <laughs> outside, Sting again hits what might have been his Stinger Splash to the barricade, again not on camera. Great job, WCW. You missed it twice. <laughs> the Bigfoot of wrestling. They catch it when he misses one, though. Yeah, yeah, right? Every time. Meanwhile, Flair chop blocks Hogan and gets the figure four. Hogan eventually rolls it over, but Paige gets back in and boots the crap out of Hogan's leg. Nearly gets a diamond cutter on Flair, clotheslines Flair out, and locks a ring post figure four on Hogan. Sting eventually saves, but the damage is done, and Hogan's unable to continue. He's taken out by Randy Anderson, Doug Dillinger, and trainer Danny Young, as Eric Bischoff looks on so he can get some camera time. Well, you know it's serious that Bischoff shows up. That's how it's real. Yes, he does his everything is serious face. Yes. Actually, he does a pretty good job with that. No, he does, yeah. We're down to three, and Paige calmly watches as Sting and Flair fight, until Sting no-sells Flair's chops and clotheslines him to the floor, which is when Paige lunges into clothesline Sting for two. Paige elbow drop gets two as well, but Flair's back, so Paige counters a whip with a kick, caught by Flair, into Paige's awesome spinning lariat for two. Stings back up and gets a stinger splash to Paige. Paige nearly counters a slam into the diamond cutter, but Sting escapes and hits a one-handed bulldog. Flair and Sting go after Paige, but he flings Flair through the ropes and counters a Sting tombstone piledriver into his own for two, saved by Flair. Flair sends Paige outside, but Sting superplexes Flair for two. Flair backdrop for two, and he grabs a sleeper hold, but Paige gets in and puts a sleeper on Flair until Sting jawbreakers both of them. Fun spot there. Mm -hmm. They're down for nine. (laughs) Macho's counting looks like he's flexing. It's hilarious. Yeah, that's true. Flair and Paige attack Sting, but he double clotheslines them down, beats them both up, Stinger splashes Flair, and puts on the Scorpion Deathlock, but Paige saves. Sting floats over a Paige suplex and hits the Scorpion Death Drop for two as Flair saves, Guess Sting wanted to show Paige wasn't the only one that could rapidly counter into his finisher. Yeah, there you go. It's pretty smooth, actually. Mm -hmm. Flair knees Sting in the crotch and locks on the figure four, but Sting manages to turn it over. But Flair turns it again, but close enough to the ropes that Sting can grab them. But Savage kicks his hand away. Savage drags Flair, and thus Sting, to mid-ring, and a confused Flair keeps the hold on which makes him easy prey for Macho's top rope elbow drop. Savage chills on the top rope and counts, but Paige is up at nine. Paige stomps Sting, but flares up with an eye poke. But Paige ducks a flare chop and smoothly hits the diamond cutter for the three count, the win, and the title. Macho brings Paige the belt and makes his exit, and Paige climbs up on the turnbuckle to celebrate with his belt raised overhead in a terrific shot. Paige exits as well, leaving Sting and Flair still laying in the ring. Thoughts on this one? I like it a lot, eventually. For me, the beginning part when it's four people is a bit much to follow. Mm-hmm. I don't think they really ever got a good four-person formula in there. They have good you know, one-on-one sections, but it always feels disconnected. Mm-hmm. Won't be outside, you couldn't see it. Either they didn't follow them on the outside, or they would follow people in the ring, and you couldn't see both. Right. Once they did the injury angle with Hogan, I thought it, they had a good three-person match, which was actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. You're able to do the big move someone breaks a pin rather than kick out bit, 
So you can make people look stronger in matches like this by having constant save. It's mm-hmm. definitely a good focus on counter wrestling as well. Having everyone know how the counter wrestling finisher is nice. It shows familiarity and shows like their sort of experience with these people. It's interesting to see that I think they're really trying to make Paige be a heel through the match. Mm-hmm. I think it mostly works, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that transition happen during this. They show a viciousness to him in this one that you don't see with face page. True. So the whole idea is that he's a real bad person because he injured Hogan. He did a lot of it, to be fair, but he did the second half of that. I think the main thing that makes it a little bit more heelish, and to be fair, the announcers don't fully build it up as outright heelish mm-hmm. yet at this point. But I think the thing that can lead you to thinking that way is that he's doing it while Hogan is still in the hold, taking advantage of them both being immobilized and everything. True. There's a few points where Paige is very opportunistic Yeah, through the match. They could have left that and not done anything with it, but I can see them. If you're saying Paige is going to go heel soon, that's a good way of like showing hints that that's going to occur, at least. Yeah, it's a shame that you can't be like smart, like the way he waits out and lets the two of them fight. You can't be smart and also a good guy, apparently. <laughs> yeah. No, you have to be constantly fighting the odds, even when there's no reason to <laughs> be a good guy in wrestling at this point. Yeah, true. It's nice to see Paige get his moment here, even if the middle of them turning heel, which is it's a shame he don't get big baby face earned his way Paige winning the title, you get this version. It's still rewarding for him, I'm sure, at a personal level. Mm-hmm. And everyone to see, but I feel like if he got his big Heroes or welcome win like Sting would get and Goldberg got, it might be on the level with that. Whereas here it happens on this show, which is all other thing. He didn't get to win on Halloween Havoc or Starcade. He still gets his moment, it's just not quite the same. Mm-hmm. I think it's still a big moment for him, but it's hurt by the way the show ends as well. That it's just like him him raising the title, oh, we're done. Yeah, yeah. You know, rather than normally you get some announcer discussion afterwards or something like that. It's highlighted and it has that really great camera shot there, yeah, but sure. it's not as highlighted as you kind of want it to be for a guy mm-hmm. that has waited so long for this to happen. Right. As we've discussed in the past, there just was never like a great time during 97 or 98. 97, he's not quite the right level for it yet. Mm. 98, they've got a whole bunch of other things going on and there's maybe not a great place to slot him in necessarily. Mm. You can see where they're kind of stuck waiting this long for it. But yeah, right. it does feel like it's big, but it should be bigger. Yeah. Well, it could be that, you know, him taking the power away from the crazy vengeful Flair, but it's him being more heelish to win it from Flair. So it's not quite the same. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, this does fall afoul of the common multi-man match problem, I thought, as it's frequently just a series of singles matches with competitors that change up rather than involving all that many spots where three or four guys all participate. Sure. But I agree with you, the match gets a little better once it's down to three men. Mm-hmm. They just seem to have an easier time rapidly trading off partners, or at least playing up character with why only two guys are fighting, like Paige just yeah. chilling out in the corner. But even then, there's not a lot of combination spots. That said, for the entire thing, they do a good job of showing the competitors need to pay attention at all times. There's various points, like you pointed out, where competitors get really close to a win only for someone to lunge in to break it up. Yeah. So I really enjoyed the teases at finishers, especially the number of times that Paige gets so close to sneaking in a diamond cutter. Mm -hmm. Again, everyone does everything that they can to avoid that move, which demonstrates his power. And importantly, Paige never actually hits it until the ending. 
Nobody ever kicks out of it or breaks that up. No, oh, yeah, that's true. Even in a chaotic multi-man match where they'd have a good excuse to have that not lead to a pin, they protect that move. Yeah. It's really cool to see that, actually. I'm really torn on Savage's involvement. Mm. It's interesting, but it really feels unnecessary to the match story. Up until the end when you have to set up the flare stuff, yeah. Well, I mean, even even then, uh, to be honest, Sting's already legally escaped the hold, so Flair's already been stopped from winning without Savage, and Flair's already done enough damage to Sting to stop him from being able to fight for a bit. It feels like you could have just had Flair stand up and boom, Diamond Cutter, and that could be it. You don't need Savage to also hit an elbow on Flair. The only thing you can maybe say he does by elbow dropping Flair is give Paige a little bit more time to recover, but... I think it's less that they're trying to say he's there to help Paige, but he's just there to take a shot at Flair because he's mad at him. Yeah. So I think this is a timing thing. If instead of getting the ropes and then him pulling them apart, if he had come in earlier, like Flair thinks he's going to have to win because Sting can't quite make the ropes, and then he does that, so it's him taking a shot. Because you said Flair can't move, he's in the hold, unless yeah. he wants to break it. I think that makes sense. If they're going for he wants a shot at Flair, but yeah. Yeah, like so basically if Sting hadn't quite made the ropes yet and he did it, I think I'd have less of a problem with that. Yeah, yeah because sure. then that'd be a little more, there was at least a reason for him to do it, mm-hmm. that it stopped Flair from winning. And then you can say, okay, but then Paige's victory is Paige's alone. Right. The actual ending spot, Paige hitting a typically great counter into the diamond cutter is excellent. Mm-hmm. There's just a few odd points getting to that ending. Mm-hmm. Overall, though, fun main event. Maybe a bit disappointingly low on the kind of chaos I would hope for for a multi-man match, but still fun. Some very good character work and some great crowd reactions, and of course a wonderful moment for Diamond Dallas Page to make this a good watch. Mm-hmm. The other thing to discuss with this is the whole Hogan situation. Does that feel like a legit injury and they have to think about the match or not? I don't think so. I mean... Yeah, I don't think so either. But I think it feels like a good storyline injury, though. Mm. I don't have a problem with it as a spot. I think it feels like a great use of Paige as starting to show that more vicious side, like I said. He really, really, really goes after Hogan Mm -hmm. while he's trapped and then doing the ring post figure four and everything. But I don't have a problem with it because I think it's being used to build up the new Diamond Dallas Page. I think my issue with it, it, it connects to a lot of Hogan stuff. Whether it meant to be or not, it feels to a certain extent like Hogan is having the, oh, I'm hurt, so that's why I have to leave the match, and explain why he doesn't win the title that show. Mm. That That's a perfect excuse. Well, I wasn't in the match when it ended. I mean, no one pins him, and he's not even around to do anything about it. Yeah, but he gets his butt kicked and brutally attacked and injured by someone mid-match and can't defend himself against it. And proves that he suffered enough injury from the figure four to not counter anything that DDP's doing. So I'm not really sure that if that was the plan, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it's a well-made plan necessarily. And it feels like an asterisk to, so we can explain why he didn't win. I'm not saying this is him being made to look better than us, because obviously that's not the case. But I feel like maybe he thinks, well, if I'm in this title match, someone's going to widen him with the title if I'm in here. Like, I, I don't imagine mm. he did like that, where he's in a title match, and he's you know, either not champion or he doesn't win the title. I don't know. I told you I'm not as sure on that. I'm not, I'm I don't not. really get that from that one. I get to me, it's more of a let's build up DDP's attitude and kind of show that there's something different about him where he wants to actually eliminate a competitor. Hmm. Like I said, I, I'm not as sure on this. It just 
something's off about the whole thing because they try so hard to make it seem like a real injury and you don't necessarily believe it. So like, I don't know. Well, I mean, anytime they're doing an injury angle, they're trying to act like it's a real injury. But I mean, extra, it's extra, extra, you know, for the show, I mean, because they don't do an injury angle other than, you know, ref bumps, except on this part of the show. Hmm. Yeah, I think you and I are going to disagree heartily on that one. I I don't see any of that. Hmm. In my defense, it's kind of connected to the whole Hogan is always playing both sides of the situation, so it's hard not to see him trying stuff. I certainly him. understand, given things like Starcade 97, having a suspicious attitude towards Hogan. I just don't see it in this case at all. That's fine, yeah. As great as the buildup of DDP finally getting his world title is, they kind of immediately ruined it. So literally the first shot of the first Nitro post Spring Stampede, it's him being interviewed in the back, talking to somebody. He's attacked from behind by Scott Steiner and instantly knocked out. <laughs> to be fair, he's hit by a chair. So it's okay. like he's punked out, but it's like he's immediately knocked out and he's like taunted and Steiner's like throwing stuff at his unconscious body. Like, wow, our world champion, folks. Oy. So that was a earlier in the night segment so now they cut to live apparently they have a fight on the parking garage diner runs away and apparently grabs ddp's car which kimberly is just sitting in <laughs> it's really weird as one does yeah it's like he drove up and started fighting steiner but she never got out of the car like they just were stopping for groceries or something yeah, like, yeah. oh honey don't 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 get out i'll get this so he starts driving chaotically in the backstage so now suddenly scott is doing car stunts by the way Seems like a terrible idea. Yeah. So it leads to the pit where it's implied that he pushed Kimberly out of the car. So she like does the stuntman talk and roll thing where he sees he's wearing full gloves, like a full jacket and everything, like a pad over everything. You're like, huh, that's a natural thing to happen. <laughs> well, you know, Paige was taking her to her uh, live BMX performance. Oh, okay. She's off to stuntman school anyway. So she's yeah. prepared. Okay. Just so happened. I mean, lucky, lucky. Yeah, it's lucky. lucky how that worked out. Yeah. So, 15 days after the show, DDP is challenged for the world title on Nitro by Sting. I don't remember if it opens the show or something, but it's early in the show. Sting actually wins. You're like, oh, DDP's tolerance over. That's kind of weird. That leads to DDP complaining to still President Ric Flair. He gets a rematch on the same show, where now it's world champion Sting defending his title in the main event of the show against Four champion DDP, Goldberg, and Kevin Nash. Okay. And Ric Flair, by the way, entirely happy to give a title match to the guy who beat him for the title. Yes, correct. <laughs> this leads to DDP winning the title back on the same show. Okay. So yeah, hope you enjoyed Sting's world title reign of 50 minutes? Yeah. Maybe an hour, depending on how, how early the show it is. DDP's actual opponent pay-per-view coming up to Slamboree would be Kevin Nash. The story, to your point, is that he takes umbrage with DDP attacking and injuring Hulk Hogan, who's his buddy, sometimes, I guess at this point, still buddies. It's hard to tell how they feel each other sometimes. Yeah. So he gets held match based on that. And again, despite losing to Goldberg. Yeah, fair. <laughs> as for Flair himself, he would go madder with power because he lost the title. He would throw his weight around and you know, try to fire people and everything. So that would lead to a story where he's ducking a challenge from Randy Savage, who obviously has a beef with him from the show, which leads to that match where Gorgeous George has a match instead of Savage, which is 
What's well, surprisingly good, but it's still weird that Ray Savage is not wrestling on your show. It's a bizarre idea for the match, but it was actually one of the more entertaining things on that show. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and he would be challenged for his presidency by Roddy Piper, which don't think it matters. Again, president for life. Well, whatever. Well, see, Piper's going to kill him. Ah. And that will uh, solve that particular disconnect. Heenan tells the others he is going to go get some champagne, and we see one more shot of Paige holding up the title as Tony signs off, and Spring Stampede 1999 is done. Quite a rapid ending to this one, too. Yeah. So, overall thoughts on Spring Stampede 1999? Overall, it's a pretty good show. Uh, You have some really strong matches. The opener is really good. You have really reliable talents like Benoit Malenko getting a chance to shine, which is nice. The main event scene has some strong moments. You get really good crowd reaction through a lot of the matches. It's ultimately, like usual, it's still not quite as strong overall. You get more crowd reaction usually, but less work rate and you know all that stuff. The usual. That said, it's still a good show. The worst stuff in the show just doesn't feel like it belongs on a show, but it's not terrible. And then the hardcore match is not great, so yeah. <laughs> Kind of doubling back to that one there, circling back yeah. to that. But yeah, it's overall a pretty adorable show, and it's very brisk because they take no time for video packages or meeting Oakley and do really anything on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, I thought this wasn't near as strong a show as 94 or 97 or even as 98, but it was still a pretty good show. There were a few more obvious missteps this time with one match I'd call solidly bad, and a number of others that were just average, but were burdened by strange pacing or weird booking decisions. It did have some great moments and some great matches as well, but whenever it established some momentum, it did something to lose it, Mm -hmm. to break up the flow or to drag itself down a bit. But at the same time, something great would often come along to help the show out again. So it rarely ended up firmly in either camp, bad or good, for very long, with the exception of the middle of the show, where we got Mysterio versus Kidman and the Horsemen versus Raven and Saturn right in a row. That was a great section. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) The stories could be interesting, but the storytelling was hampered. There were no promos other than brief clips in the video packages Mm -hmm. and one bit at the internet table with poor Ray where they just didn't turn his microphone on. (laughs) Yeah, right. It does keep the show moving at a rapid pace, Scott Steiner aside, But it hurt the match stories, as there's nothing beyond the commentary team to emphasize themes, build up to matches, or reinforce what happened. They do a good job with that for the most part, mind, but things still sometimes fall flat. Heck, we don't even get to really see the ending of the story for Mysterio vs. Kidman. The match, sure, but that story did not end at the pinfall. No. It ended when we saw whether they were still friends, and we didn't. Yes. And Paige's title win, we get the triumphant thrust of the belt skyward, and the show's over. Yeah. We don't even get the commentary team discussing it back at the desk. It's just over. As a result, the show can feel small, even though some pretty consequential things happen. Some of the match choices don't really help either. Some have clear stories to them, but others just feel like their TV matches slapped on the show or are pay-per-view worthy in action, but in story just seem to be the build-up to the match that's actually important. Mm. For instance, Blitzkrieg versus Guerrero is a fun match, but it's a number one contenders match, not for the title, because that's otherwise occupied. Similarly, Raven and Saturn face the Horsemen in a really fun contest, 
but they can't face the tag champs because they're facing each other over the cruiserweight title that Blitzkrieg and Guerrero want. You didn't like the uh, commentaries tried to say that this match is so heated that it's almost bigger than a title match? No. <laughs> okay, just checking. They do try that. Yeah. I mean, they got to try something. I yeah, guess. it's true. It makes for some interesting storytelling, but it isn't linked well enough on the show to make it stand out. Maybe if Mysterio and Kidman got to react to both of those other matches, or Guerrera got to react to Mysterio and Kidman's match, it would have tied them together better and emphasized how important all of them were. Commentary tonight was quite fun, though. Tony seemed to be in a really odd mood, snarking more openly at both of his fellow commentators, where he normally kind of plays the straight man and only bickers with Heenan. I rather liked it, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nice to pace. It was fun to hear him play a different role than the norm. They do make a few missteps here and there, and there's some awkward bits with everybody quiet or everyone talking over each other. And there's some more missed calls than on many shows, with even Tanae making flubs, which, as Tony points out, is a rare thing. Yes. But all the same, they gave the show an interesting atmosphere, and they were fun to listen to. Presentation, otherwise, was not as strong as the previous shows. The set design was still fun, but it looked like leftovers from prior years and wasn't near as highlighted as in past years. There's not much emphasis of the theme elsewhere on the show, one cartoon horse aside. Yeah. And of course, there's several points where we miss seeing something important because the cameras are showing the wrong thing, or because we cut to something else at the wrong moment. (laughs) And of course, there's poor Ray mute stereo. Yes. But still, despite some very visible flaws, I found this a largely enjoyable show. There's some points where it slows down or stumbles, but it's a pretty easy watch overall. I'm not sure I can quite say we're 4 for 4 this series, maybe 3.5 for 4. Yeah, sure. But this has been a great series, and this show does not screw that up. Yeah. There's always a back and forth thing, especially at this point in wrestling, is how you present pay-per-views. Do you go... I know everyone that's watching this show must watch all Nitros and Thunders and Saturday Nights and whatever shows they have besides this too. So they know what's happening. It's okay. Versus maybe put things on here in case, hey, you know, a friend invites his friend over, watch this show he's talking about. Otherwise, he has to explain everything to him. Yeah. And I think even assuming that everyone does know the storyline, I think you just want to have something... A promo, uh, a really good video package, something that just re-emphasizes the importance of what's happening Mm. and makes it feel bigger. Sure. Like, if you've done a good job on TV, people are really interested in seeing these matches already. Sure. But it's something that the WWE always does well. Yeah. It's just that extra little touch on the actual pay-per-view that's going to remind you, this is epic. Mm -hmm. It, It doesn't necessarily have to remind you what the story was so much as just be like, oh my gosh, you want to see this. Yeah. Energize you for the match. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that WCW kind of misses out on sometimes, and this is one of the shows where they definitely do. I can see that, yeah. Match of the night and MVP. So Al, your match of the night. Some pretty strong contenders here. Opening is really fun, energetic. It's just not quite crisp enough. I think if we saw the third or fourth match between these guys, we'd see the more mm-hmm. posh version of it. The tag match is really good. The necessary hard element and the unfortunate hindsight cringe factor of the finish doesn't help things. And there's some things that don't quite make sense, like having table spots in there. The one that I think that works most for me is Mysterio Kidman. 
Mm-hmm. I think they have a really good match together. Like you said, this not the full story because that's presentation issues on the whole show. But you get a lot here. You get good amount of action. The pacing's well done. The moves are allowed to breathe. People can experience them properly. And it all delivers really well. Mm-hmm. I had the same three matches that I was uh, choosing between. Right. I thought all of them were terrific matches. But I'm going to agree with you. I give the edge to Mysterio versus Kidman. And I'm going to say for two reasons. Okay. First, it did a really good job with a story of slow escalation, and it played to the tag partners and former opponents' histories. And second, even though they had two pretty nasty hits with Mysterio going face first to the stairs and Kidman jamming his knee, they did not let it shake them, and they kept things going nice and smooth. So it was a really impressive performance in that regard as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, MVP? There's a bunch of good choices on here, honestly. Mm-hmm. As a ringside person, I that Arn did a really good job with his limited oh, appearance. Yes. And his reactions. That face. <laughs> yeah, that that's really good, yeah. Blitzkrieg is a really good, strong one here. Again, I think if everything had tied together a little more, you'd absolutely be an MVP as a real, like, show-up, standout thing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. He's definitely not a bad pick at all. I was leaning more towards Booker T initially, because for me, I thought he delivered his, his part of the match with Steiner really well. He had the good energy to really liven up the part when they're actually fighting. And even when they're not, he has a good character. Where it's, it's not just dead air with like with Buff Bagwell. He's kind of standing around waiting for, de- for the match to happen. No offense, Buff, but it's true. And for me, Booger T gave a very enjoyable, as much as it can be, Big Papa Pump match at this mm-hmm. point. I've seen other people have matches with him, and it's not nearly as good. He elevates that a bit with his part of the match. But I think the more I think about it and more you talk about it, I'm actually going to go with Rey Mysterio. Oh, okay. Because he was really good in his match. He got a limited bit of promo on the back, so he tried to do more stuff yep. to his credit. And he was good for what we could hear. And more importantly, he powered through an injury, which could have definitely derailed the match, as we mm-hmm. said. Did not let it affect him all that much and really delivered in the ring. Yes. Yeah, I thought, like you, a lot of great performances tonight. I love when we have a lot of choices for these awards. Absolutely. I'll call out Mysterio as well, uh, Kidman as well for for that match. Blitzkrieg, I agree, terrific surprise and really shocked me with how good he was. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll call out Tony on commentary. Yeah, yeah, sure. And of course, like you said, Arn for just that yeah. wonderful, that one expression itself alone almost earns him MVP. Right. And he was good for the rest of the match, too. But I'm going to give this to Diamond Dallas Page. Ah, okay. This is Page's night. And beyond that, I felt he did so much to bring story, drama, and character to that Four Corners match, sneaking in attempts at the Diamond Cutter all over the place, playing up sneakily watching others fight brutally assaulting Hogan to eliminate him, mm-hmm. among other things. He was clearly aware that he had to prove himself worthy of the title here, so he did, pulling out all the stops to prove that he deserved the title he was finally getting. I think he's responsible in that match for a lot of the match's drama. I'll agree with that, yeah. Bringing his typically good like storyline plotting, where you can see a through line from the start of the match to the finish of the match yeah. with what he's trying to accomplish in it. So I really, really appreciated his performance and getting to see the little details he was introducing throughout the match. Mm -hmm. And that wraps up our review of Spring Stampede 1999. 
If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, or share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Spring Stampede 2000, Stomp of Approval. No, really, that's the subtitle. Oh. And hey, we've had four perfectly good shows in this series. Surely they can keep this up to the finish line, right? Right? I mean, what could go Russo? I mean, wrong. (laughs) This is Bob Moore for Alec Bridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. With the ref out, Goldberg smacks Goldberg. <laughs> Whoa. Self-betrayal. Uh, you wouldn't see it coming, or I guess you would. What's <laughs> How would that work? Multiple personalities, I guess. Yeah, yeah, sure. What's sad is I didn't write it that way. I just completely misread what I wrote <laughs> this time. I, I can't blame past me for this mistake. <laughs>